Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, December 30th, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to discuss what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. For the first time in, what, two weeks? <laughs> it's been a while. Uh, we also have Slash Film Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writer's Y Train Bowie. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. Yeah, we haven't recorded one of these in two weeks, and I haven't been on one of these in maybe a month at this point. And the reason for that is I actually took this uh, 10-day trip to Hawaii. I went to Oahu. Uh, This is something that was booked before the lockdowns uh, occurred. Uh, It was – I got this opportunity uh, to visit Disney's Lani Resort and Spa in – it's called Resort and Spa, but the spa is closed right now because of COVID. Uh, the, uh, I, I got to visit that in Oahu, Hawaii, which I've never been to. And I, I, I've never been to because it's just so expensive. Like, usually I think it's like $700, $800 a night. Like, something insane that I would never in my life be able to afford. But uh, I got this opportunity. Uh, a DVC member who had a reservation uh, was selling their reservation for really cheap. Uh, DVC is uh, Disney Vacation Club. That's like a timeshare thing that Disney does. That if you go every year to Disney, it might might make it a uh, might be like might save you money um, or give you some kind of uh, extra rewards and stuff. But if you aren't, then you shouldn't even look into it. Uh, but uh, basically, because of COVID, a lot of people had these points that they had to use this year to book a reservation and uh, you know didn't want to travel, uh, so. Uh, their loss was my gain, I guess. And uh, because I was okay with traveling because California was, uh, the cases in California were going up. Uh, it, it, it was, uh, I mean, a scary time here in, uh, Southern California and I, uh, escaping for 10 days to Hawaii where, you know, in California, I think like, what, like 25,000 cases a day in California or something like that. And I think Hawaii at the time that we left was at like 40 cases a day for all the islands total. So, um, 
and they're taking it seriously there. Like uh, to go to Hawaii is no joke. It's almost like going to another country in that uh, you either have to quarantine for two weeks, which would suck. We would have to stay in our hotel room for uh, two weeks and not leave the hotel room. Uh, they actually lock you in to your room if that actually happens. Um, and or you take a COVID test before your trip. So, and you got to take a COVID test within 72 hours of your trip. So it's like this like accelerated process. It's not the, um, it's not one of those, uh, what do you call that? Like the quick test where you get the results, like the, within a couple hours, um, those ones are like not as, uh, accurate. Um, so I actually got like one of those, uh, um, swabs like stuck up my nose, both, both nostrils. I actually recorded for ordinary adventures because a a lot of people were asking, um, to see it because a lot of people haven't done the COVID test. This is the first time I ever, uh, got a COVID test and, you know, for, for, you know this year has been crazy, but I've just never had any symptoms or anything to warrant going and getting tested. And, uh, it's, uh, crazy because when we did it, it was like in our car. So like we drove up to this, this testing center and they would like, they handed us the stuff through like a slit in our, you know, window and we had to like self-administer, like sticking up our nose and then giving it to them. And they're like in like full, like almost like hazmat suits. <laughs> I don't know. It just makes me feel like we're in, like we're really living in a post-apocalyptic society at this point. Um, but uh, yeah, so you get this COVID test back and uh, the island that we were going to, Oahu, allows you with that COVID test to not have to quarantine. Um, other islands in Hawaii uh, do still have the quarantine. Uh, so it's not, you know, I don't know. If you're, whatever. Do your research if you're doing anything. Uh, but uh, Hawaii is taking things super serious. Like anywhere around the island, you need to have your mask on. The only time you can have your mask off is obviously when you're in your private residence, hotel room, uh, car, or if you're eating, or if you're in a body of water. So, uh, I don't know. It, it felt really safe to me, and it felt... Um, it also felt good because it wasn't like... Um, you know, I have... I'm a big uh, theme park person, as you guys know. And we have a lot of friends who are vloggers who are, you know, taking trips to Walt Disney World uh, during this Christmas season. And not that I feel like that's unsafe. I actually feel like Disney resorts are probably one of the safer places because of all the precautions they take. But, like, it's just crowded and there's lots of people. And, like, you have to do – I really think to be safe, you got to do your, like, defensive driving. And you got to avoid – you know, running into people and stuff. And like, uh, you know, sometimes you forget about that and stuff like that. Uh, so I think like, you know, a situation like that would be, I don't know, tough for me. Uh, whereas Hawaii was good because it was Kitra and I, and we basically were off on our own. Most of the time we were either at the resort, you know, they have a lazy river there. It's an incredible place. It's first of all, Hawaii is paradise. Number one, number two, I'm I'm, I've made it a goal to go back there because it is incredible. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we would be off on our own, like on a lazy river and there'd be like, you know, other families in lazy river, but they would be hundreds of feet behind or ahead of us. And like, you know, uh, we'd go around the Island by ourselves in our own rental car and, you know, sure. We'd buy some food, which I'll talk about later, but it it felt like we were, it, it was very much like a trip that was like us on our own rather than us in crowds. 
So it, it felt good from that respect. Um, I, I, of course, recorded all this for our YouTube channel, Ordinary Adventures. Uh, we recorded, I think, 16 videos over the courses of the 10-day trip. Um, so you'll see those. They're, they're starting to go up now over there. I went to a ton of things, including the uh, Kulua, I can never pronounce it, Kululoa Ranch, which is where they filmed uh, the Jurassic Park films. They filmed some of Lost there. You know, Jumanji, or uh, yeah, Jumanji. uh, Anytime you see like those big mountains, uh, actually, I I was just watching um, Karate Kid Part 2. I didn't know that the, the Okinawa scenes were actually not filmed in Okinawa. They were filmed on uh, this ranch. But we have a, we got a whole tour of that, and that video will be coming up. And when that hits, I'll, uh, I'll plug it on the podcast because I think that one is relevant to your interests and everybody listening's interests. Uh, but, yeah, I had a fun time. It's This trip is actually, you know, it's just hitting the channel now. But we've actually been home for over 10 days now, so I, we've completed our – our cor- our post trip quarantine no symptoms uh fingers crossed um but yeah that's what i have been up to and uh Brad what have you been up to well uh you know enjoying you know a weird christmas i guess you know one of the weirdest christmases uh that we'll probably ever have um and one of the ways that we did that was something that i've never done before actually um, did for the first time with my girlfriend, and we decided to build gingerbread houses. Since we weren't going anywhere, all we did was virtual Christmas stuff with my family, and so we just needed a, a way to pass the time. And so over, uh, basically like two, two and a half days, not like the entire day, but just for like a few hours across um, those days, we uh, built gingerbread houses, and it was pretty fun. I actually even posted both of them online um, on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook because we uh, we put them up without saying whose was whose and voted to see whose was best and my girlfriend beat me uh, so that's my my defeat that I have to share with everybody now but uh, but everyone did say that they liked both houses we had a lot of fun making them with a variety of different candies that came in the box and that we had uh, around the house and so gingerbread houses they're fun did did you eat them Brad no we did not eat them because. I feel like the combination of the candies that we used with the gingerbread cookies and the frosting, and after like the frosting had dried so that the stuff actually stayed on the houses, it probably wouldn't have been very good. I have heard that people do like to pick at their like gingerbread houses as like time goes on after they've built them, but it just didn't seem like a like a good idea. I love that like after week after week we hear the stuff that you're eating in the what we've been eating section. And it always seems like these weird combinations, and this is the combination that you don't think would be good to eat? I mean, I don't think I ever eat weird combinations of things. I think I I eat things that, like, where something you wouldn't expect to have a certain flavor of is there. But it's not necessarily, like, a combination of weird flavors. Like, I I think if someone made, like, a gingerbread cookie with, you know, gummy watermelon slices on it, I'm not – I don't think I would go out of my – way to try that but, that but maybe you're right though maybe i would because i'm so terrible <laughs> <laughs> uh I, I i know i would i think uh, it, i think okay, it's just, uh, I think it's just <laughs> the fact that like after you leave it out for like a while like obviously the cookie and like the candy and stuff just isn't as good anymore so maybe if it was like i don't know a fresh quote-unquote fresh baked gingerbread house then maybe i would try mixing some stuff but but no not in this case <laughs> 
Yeah. I, I know at Disney, they always build these like huge uh, gingerbread houses for like the Grand Californian Resort. And I always go in there every Christmas season, except for this season, obviously. Um, and it's like this like huge gingerbread house that's like, I want to say like 10 or 20 feet tall. Now, like you could literally when you come into the lobby of this hotel, you could smell the gingerbread because it's like real gingerbread. And like I always wonder like what it would taste like. But I'm guessing since it sits there for the entire, like, I always wonder, like, do the cast members there, like, when they're taking it down, do they try to eat some of it? Or, like, is it, like, hugely stale because it's been up for, like, probably, like, two months at that point? (laughs) I don't know. Uh, Okay. HD, what have you been up to? Well, I think I was one of the few people on this podcast to see family for Christmas, um, but I went through all the proper precautions. And Peter, you already went into great detail, detail about getting a COVID test, which I also did. I got the, um, not the rabid test, but the PCR one, the one that's more um, thorough, and uh, went, we did mine for like two hours outside for that. So that was fun. Um, did, did you self-administer or did someone stick it up your nose? Someone stuck it, stuck it up my nose. I went to an urgent care clinic in New York. And uh, they did it for me, but it was very quick, so I didn't have to. I'm curious, like, did it hurt? Was it like it was uncomfortable? Like <laughs> they got really high up there, but um, it didn't hurt per se. Yeah, see, for, for me, I was able to like self-administer, so I was able to control it. But even then, like, uncomfortable was the word. Like it, like tickled. Like it made me sneeze. I mm-hmm. felt so bad. Like even with like the window most of the way up and the guys like outside in the hazmat suit or whatever. Like I was like, I'm sneezing. Oh no, this is bad. But uh yeah. But uh yeah, it's not that big of a deal. It goes by really quick. Yeah, it's got it's done in thirty seconds and um yeah, not a big deal at all. So I encourage everyone who has the means or has uh the reason to to take one. Um, but that's not, there's nothing to report about that. But, uh, what I do have to report is that I guested recently on an episode of, Sla- of Slash Filmcast. I, all the way back when in 2017, I appeared on their podcast to review Wonder Woman. So I was invited back to review Wonder Woman 1984. And, um, I'm, I'm sure that a lot of the points that were made on that podcast will be made in the our coming discussion of that movie. Um, but I will say, uh, Cat catch it just to uh hear jeff canada's like 15 20 minute filibuster about all <laughs> the reasons that wonder woman 1984 doesn't work for him but um it's a fun episode and i really liked it. i also stuck around to talk about soul with them and that was a really good discussion so you can check out slash film cast newest episode on um slash film.com as well as the podcasting platforms you expect it on yeah we'll link that in the show notes chris you also had like a podcast thing going on. <laughs> I sure did. Um, I, I wrapped up uh, 21st Century Spielberg, the, the podcast I've been doing all year. It's like my one real achievement for the year. Uh, and it was a lot of work. So if you listen to it, uh, I, I really appreciate that because it's, you know, uh, I don't want to belittle people who don't use scripts for podcasts. All podcasting is work, but. Some people, like this podcast, we just show up and we talk and we don't do a lot of, like, prep for it. But for, for the 21st Century Spielberg podcast, it's it's just me and it's all scripted. So, you know, it's not like I'm, I'm flying off the cuff there. I have to – I do a lot of research and I write up all the all the stuff I'm saying. So it's it's a lot of work. So if you, yeah. if you listen to every episode or even just some of the episodes, thanks – 
I appreciate it. Um, uh, the show will be back eventually when, whenever West Side Story comes back. But for now, it's it's on hiatus. But uh, all the episodes are out there, so please go yeah. listen to it if you haven't. Thank you. And, and and today you have a big announcement that you're announcing the the sequel, Twenty First Century Snyder. Yes, right? I, I I'm a big Snyder <laughs> head. I can't wait to talk about all of Zack Snyder's great great movies. For uh, no, it's not happening. No, no. <laughs> Uh, Chris, I, I love your podcast so much, and I listened to the, the newest episode, and I'm wondering, because you just said it's on hiatus, are you going to do the thing where you have like somebody else come on and, and sort of have that like free-flowing conversation about the most the two most recent movies, like a, a sort of bonus episode until you pick back up for uh, West Side Story? You know, I don't think so. I was doing those bonus episodes, and they were a lot of fun, but like I said, this, this, it's, it's, doing the show is, is a lot of work, and I'm... I'm very tired. <laughs> I'm like existentially <laughs> tired. So understandable. I, I don't. Have, I don't have the energy. Maybe maybe after the new year, I'll, I'll think about it. Chris, yeah. would you ever consider doing it with another director sometime in the future? I yeah, I definitely have thought about doing that, or even like going back and doing like like 20th century Spielberg, basically starting from the beginning. But uh, yeah, like I said, I, I need to um, I need to get in my 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 chamber my coffin and stay there for a little while and recharge. And then after the new year, I will hopefully have a, I will have the will to live again. And I will start thinking about this. I'm trying to think of what director you would do. Would it be Scorsese? If you were going to do another one, that was definitely what I was leaning towards. Although uh, at the same time, I don't want to be like, I'm a generic film bro. Here's another male director, but you know, that I, I like what I like and I can't help it, but we'll see. Yeah. Uh, I also enjoyed the podcast. I'm a few episodes behind. It's one of those podcasts I feel like because it's scripted, you can't just be like doing something else while you're listening to it. So I have to like kind of, uh, you know, do it when I'm like, you know, laying in bed, going to sleep or something. You know, I need, I need to be like only listening to it. Right. Yeah. No, I understand. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. Let's move on to what we've been reading. Uh, Jacob, what have you been reading this week? I dug into my comic book stack, my massive unread pile of comics. Uh, over the holidays, and I read you know stuff I've been reading for years like Batman and so on. It's it's pretty good right now for the record. But I want to highlight a few things that I really enjoyed. Uh, the first of which is Gideon Falls, a horror comic uh, from Image from writer Jeff Lemire and uh, artist uh, Andrea Sarantino, and it just wrapped up. It's a 27 issue run. It's a com- complete series. Beginning, middle, end. I recommend it offline to Chris heavily because I think he would really really like it. Uh, it's essentially there's a lot of loss in it. There's a lot of Twin Peaks in it, and there's a lot of horror in it. It's it's if both of those shows had a real serious injection of horror with a massive do whatever you want budget. It starts off as a sort of a small scale horror story, murder in a small town type thing, and escalates into something very cosmic and upsetting. And as big as it gets, it never stops being terrifying. It's one of the few horror comics I get I think functions with jump scares like I would turn pages and have jolts which I don't say about a lot of comics and uh Lemire and Sorrentino are both really incredible uh Lemire is one of my favorite writers in comics he's written all kinds of great things he's written a lot of superhero stuff but also so much great indie stuff you should really dig into him if you are any have any interest in like who's probably the best guy writing comics right now and Sorrentino uh 
he collaborated with uh, Lemire on a, on a pretty good Green, green uh, Arrow run a few years back. And uh, But both of them working together on horror seems to be like a sweet spot. They both bring out the best in each other. And uh, it's Gideon Fall. It's finished. You have to worry about not having an ending. Uh, so whether you want to read it digitally, you know, or buy the trade paperbacks, it is a really terrific piece of work. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Uh, and I, and the, I think the first oh, trade paperback is like three ninety nine on Comixology or... I guess that's Amazon too, right? Like it's connected to Amazon Comixology. Yeah, I, yeah. If you want to read digitally, it's really, really cheap. And if you want to read physically, if you're a physical comic guy like I am, uh, Image Trade Paperbacks, the volume ones tend to be nine ninety nine. Uh, so it's a really, you know, easy place to jump. And I've already told the Slash Film staff if they all pick up Gideon Falls Volume One and don't enjoy, I will mail them a ten dollar bill. That's how confident I am that people will like this comic. Uh, that does not apply to you, the listener. I'm sorry, uh, but I do recommend. That uh, you give it a shot because it is uh, the really kind of ambitious, uh, terrifying, cerebral, visceral horror story that I think comics do really well. It's a case, it's a, it's, a, it's a place where you know you have the only budget is your imagination, and there's so much imagination <laughs> in the pages of Gideon Falls. But uh, enough about that. Let's move on to something a bit more, a bit more mainstream, and that is a. Uh, the Doctor Doom comic series that just wrapped up its 10th issue. Apparently it was intended to be a 10-issue thing. Uh, it was not canceled. It just ended. And this is from uh, writer Christopher Cantwell and artist Salvador La Roca. And it's, it was really, really fun. Doctor Doom is my favorite comic book character. He's my favorite Marvel villain, for sure. And he I like him best when he's treated as shades of gray. You know, instead of being just the all-domineering, all-villain, you know, arch-foe of Fantastic Four... Uh, this series finds him in a very peculiar place where uh, Doctor Doom, the dictator of Latveria, the, one of the arch-villains of the Marvel Universe, is accused of a crime he didn't commit. There's a terrorist attack that kills thousands of people, but he didn't do it, and he's arrested for it. And it follows Doctor Doom on the run as he escapes uh, without his military power, without his allies, uh, without his armor, just doing what he can to survive and clear his name. And it, it, it leads to some pretty surprising places. And there's a really interesting subplot where Doom's having visions of an alternate Marvel universe where he uses powers for good and is helping oversee a utopian paradise. And it's about him questioning, am I doing the right thing? Am I, am I, should I be the guy I am or should I pursue being a force for good? And the comic answers that question pretty definitively in the final issue. And, uh, it, it's something else. Uh, like I said, in 10 issues, if you like Dr. Doom, if you like stories about villains like I do, especially superhero villains, uh, Doctor Doom series, it's it's all done. It's good. I liked it a lot. That's also available for you to reach out and uh, procure through the comic book provider of your choice. Uh, one more thing I want to recommend. Uh, it's only issue four just came out, and I'm wrapped by this. It's called The Department of Truth. It's from uh, writer James the Fourth, who's incredibly busy. He's writing Batman right now in addition to writing many, many things. Uh, artist um, by Martin Simmons. And the idea behind this series, it's really filling the Gideon Falls gap, now that Gideon Falls is, is over, is that it follows a, uh, an instructor at Quantico, an FBI trainer, who specializes in uh, conspiracy theories, in learning, you know, what's driving, you know, white male militia and, terror- and you know, domestic terrorist groups. And he's, in the first issue, he's recruited by a top-secret government agency called, called the Department of Truth, and it's revealed that if enough people believe in something, it, it takes on power and becomes true. And the Department of Truth's job is to combat that and make sure reality stays what it is and the truth remains truth. And this means that in the first issue, uh, he is taken on a plane and flown off the edge of a flat earth because too many people are believing the earth is flat. 
So the first issue is like, eh, eh, and future issues go into other conspiracy theories. And it's a dark story. It's not like, wow, whimsical fun. It's it's a it's a horror story about how people are believing in utter nonsense and believing in evil things and embracing conspiracy theories and and what is truth uh, except the thing that you believe in and when does that when does that become the truth of everybody if enough people believe it except it takes it very literally and the last page of issue one has a major reveal about the characters of this of this comic that made me realize oh I'm I'm reading this for the for the duration um, that's the Department of Truth hmm. uh, also from Image Comics. Uh, like I said, not a not always a pleasant read. Uh, it is definitely unsettling, uh, but it's an exceptionally good horror comic, especially if you happen to uh, enjoy political conspiracies and science fiction and where they meet. Yeah. Uh, before we get to HT, I did want to quick mention that while I haven't really been reading reading, I did get three books this uh, for my birthday and Christmas that I've been kind of like flipping through. Uh, one of which was from Kitra's mom. It was uh, The Art of Mandalorian, which is just... Uh, a beautiful book to like flip through and have on your coffee table. Uh, the other one is Chris Nichols, Walt Disney's Disneyland. This is from Tashin Books, and I I, I actually want to read this one because it seems like it has a lot to uh, a lot of interesting stuff uh, like about how you know Dis- Disneyland came to be and stuff like that. But the photos in it are just fantastic, and I uh, and yeah, and the third book. Oh, Paul Duncan's. Uh, Star Wars, uh, the prequels. Uh, I forget the name of the book. Uh, let me see. Star Wars, Duncan. I should have had this off the top of my head, but it is Star the Star Wars archives, nineteen ninety nine to two thousand five, and this actually tells the stories of not only the Star Wars prequels, the production of those, but also the story of the special editions. So uh, there's some interesting stuff there. It. it it, it's uh, if it's anything like I mean I've only been flipping through it a little bit but if it's anything like the original Star Wars archives that was also by Paul Duncan it, it's kind of like an amalgamation of like the all the good stuff from like the Rinsler making of Star Wars books uh, although you know there weren't really uh, anything like that for the prequels I mean there was a couple of books but nothing of of this uh, size. Um, and it's just like this massive collection that like barely even fits on your coffee table. So uh, I did want to, uh, you know, mention those. I like uh, I'm enjoying all three of them. It's actually funny. I, I came across this page in the Star Wars archives the other day. And um, I, it was this quote. It just had this big quote from George Lucas. And the quote was, uh I decided that I was going to direct episode one because I didn't think I could direct through somebody again. It's easier to do it yourself than to have someone else do it for you. And I thought that was like so strange, right? Like we have this like the storyteller who wanted to tell stories in a very specific way and he didn't really want to waste his time making them so he hired other people to do it and they didn't do it the way like he couldn't control them enough so you know he had to become the filmmaker of these films even though he didn't want to do that (laughs) oh no it was just it's just funny to me uh hg what have you been reading so i have been reading teanu and um, I spoke a little while ago on this podcast about having started this book, and it's the fourth book in the Earthsea omnibus that I own. Um, but I wanted to talk about it again because I was just bowled over 
by this book and um, I don't have a book club anymore it dissolved so you guys get to hear all my ramblings about this book as well as the rest of the world um Teanu does something that I've never seen another fantasy book do and I kind of touched on this last time I talked about it in that it doesn't have any interest in the great adventure the epic heroes um, who are talked about in song and legends but about what comes after and it reaches this almost quietude about making do with your own like making do with your own self and own identity and trying to find who you are beyond that great purpose in life and it's um it follows the the characters from the first book uh Jed and the second book Te uh Tenar and um it it picks up with them while they're in middle age like their their lives have passed they have accomplished what they have been set on this world to do and they have to figure out what now to do with themselves and um it's just it's it's such a fantastic book that um, is almost completely without plot. It reminded me a lot of a Studio Ghibli film in that way, especially in its deep interest in women's stories and women's work, um, but also in how it interrogates the nature of evil and how that evil can come in the most mundane forms. And sometimes that evil will feel even more vile and wicked because it's so everyday and so normal. Um, it reminded me a lot... <laughs> I don't know if you guys are going to have a count of this, but uh, Doctor Who mention of the day. <laughs> it reminded me a lot of a um, Doctor Who episode that Jacob and I covered a while ago uh, where the Doctor is talking to a character about their religious beliefs and he asks her uh, whether they have a devil in her culture. And she says, oh, just the things men do. And if that devil, if that great evil exists, is in just the little evils that you see every day, the little terrible things that are um, just a a part of the fabric of this reality. And what I really love about Teanu in in that how it evolves the Earthsea series into like something that started off as a children's fantasy and kind of becomes more mature and evolved with with, um, these introductions of these sort of more horrifying things. It's not defined by these evils. It doesn't feel like it's trying to shock its readers the same way that for some for like for example a song of ice and fire does but it's just part of that life and um it doesn't it's not defined by it and i just uh, i i absolutely adored it and like how it also like examines the nature of power and the nature of men's versus women's power and this very patriarchal like story structure and um it feels very much like ursula k Le Guin coming at it from a as an older woman who has like lived most of her life and has kind of doesn't have to really prove herself anymore as a fantasy author and uh, I just was really really knocked out by by this book and um, one of my favorite things about um, the omnibus that I have is that it comes with a little afterwards for each of the books written by Ursula K. Le Guin and there's a part uh, for Tehanu where she writes about how Readers were angry that she had turned her wizard hero, Jed, uh, who they saw as a male power figure, into a shell of himself, which I thought was really familiar. <laughs> and it's so interesting that, like, especially Tehanu kind of deals with the ideas that, I'm going to say it, Last Jedi was starting to um, interrogate and starting to question uh, 20, 30 years ago. And uh, it does it so well, and it has, like, such a... A serenity about it um and doesn't it's just 
there, there's no need for these characters to become part of like the great story again because they find that serenity within their own like ident- without without divorce from that adventure and it's it's really really fantastic um i hope <laughs> i hope that none of you guys were completely like bored by this ramble but i i just wanted to rave about this book and how much i loved it and uh wow it's if you guys ever you know feel a need from my many rambles <laughs> about the earthsea book i have to dip into it i really encourage you do because it's just fantastic stuff HT, I don't know how anybody could be bored of your excitement. Like, it, like it really, I feel like comes through uh, how excited you are about these things. Okay, let's move on to what we've been watching. And uh, speaking of HT's excitement, <laughs> she was very excited about this uh, Wonder Woman sequel, Wonder Woman 1984. Um, and typically, I, I would say when I don't think HT likes everything that I, every movie that I like, but usually when she recommends a movie and I end up going to see it, I usually end up falling in, like, if she's positive about it, I'm positive about it. So I was like, oh, she really liked this Wonder Woman 1984. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think the day before it came out, I looked at Rotten Tomatoes and it was at like 90% uh, fresh. I was like, wow. Okay. This is going to be like better than the first movie. <laughs> Uh, so on Christmas day, like many of you guys, I turn on my HBO max. Actually, that's not true. The day before Christmas, I turned on my HBO max at 9 PM to watch wonder woman because I thought it went on at like midnight Eastern, but it was actually 9 AM on Christmas day. What the heck you know, Peter, is if, HBO doing? Peter, if you would have read SlashFilm.com, <laughs> you would have found out that Wonder Woman 1984 wasn't debuting on HBO Max until the middle of the day on Christmas Day. <sighs> well, I don't know. I, I somehow saw 9, and I, I assumed it was the P- Whatever. Whatever, Brad. Uh, so so I uh, went to watch it on Christmas Day, and... I don't know. You know, there's a lot of this movie or there's some things in this movie that I do really like. Uh, There's I love one thing I I think that's missing from superhero movies these days is like seeing the superheroes save innocent people and doing good things. Like, you know, one thing I loved about Richard Donner Superman was like the montages of like just like this, you know, the John Williams music playing and him like saving people and like it's not it doesn't even necessarily have to do anything with like the overall bigger arc of the plot but like just seeing superheroes be superheroes and one thing i like about this movie is we do get to see wonder woman saving people uh we do get to see like i think a lot is missing with these superhero movies but like the sense of wonder and like how these like how much of a uh I guess people look at it now as like a power fantasy, but I, like I, it always looked like to me it was kind of magical and wonderful. And I love like there's moments like in the jet that I'm not, I'm not going to get into because it's spoilers, but like just moments of wonder. Like I, I really did enjoy that. Uh, that said, I think this movie just like had so many eye roll moments, like kids being in the middle of the street, uh, it, you know, People give Man of Steel a lot of crap because they don't believe Superman or Clark Kent would would have done 
some of the things that he do- does in that movie, including, you know, what happens in the finale and also what happens with uh, or also Jonathan Kent, what happens with him. I don't buy what Wonder Woman does in this movie. The like the conceit of this movie of how Steve comes back and how she basically. <laughs> I'm wondering how I can talk about this without spoilers. I feel like at this point, everyone has watched this movie and I feel like. We have to. We can talk about it in spoilers. I mean, honestly, like, okay, it was a big deal. Everyone, it was, everyone pretty much watched it on Christmas at home. I, I feel like we can go into spoilers. And, it, and if they didn't, just put a time code thing of when we stop the Wonder Woman talk so that they can yeah. go along, go along their way. Okay, so if you want to skip to after this discussion, go to time code fifty six ten. Spoilers for Wonder Woman nineteen eighty four coming up. Okay, uh, so. What I uh, what I was going to say is like, you know, early on in this movie, there's this like this thing that grants people's wishes. It's this ridiculous MacGuffin, which seems so silly and too convenient. It seems like it's just invented basically so that we could bring Chris Pine back, which I'm OK with. I, you know, I was willing to go with that until the point where he shows up and it's not Chris Pine. It, it's not Steve. It's it's this other guy who she just um, like he uses her his body or something like and then basically wonder woman diana is she's okay with kind of like i guess raping this unsuspecting person whose body has been taken over magically by steve i don't know that seems like totally out of like i know she loves him and i know like even though it's been decades she's like still walking down the street like pining over him which also seems like i don't know I, i i took wonder woman I don't know. Maybe this is a guy talking, and I wish uh, I think HT walked uh, stepped away to go to the bathroom. But uh, like I don't know. Like I, I do get there's a romance at the core of the first Wonder Woman, but like I I would like to think that she's like stronger than that. Like every day she's still like pining over. I don't know. Okay, you know I'm gonna throw this to someone else because <laughs> Chris, what what did you think of Wonder Woman? Uh, Wonder Woman 1984 is a bad movie. Um, I I really like the first Wonder Woman. I even didn't mind the ending that everyone seems to hate. Like I I agree that the ending of the first movie is overly CGI e, but it didn't really bother me that much. So I was looking forward to this movie, and uh, this this movie is a mess. Um, uh, it's it's a very silly movie, and I don't mind silliness. You know, I actually I love. Aquaman. I think that's a really wonderful film, and that movie is very silly, but the silliness kind of works for that movie, because, you know, it's about Aquaman. It's about a guy who talks to fish. I want that to be silly. I, I, I want to see an octopus playing the drums, but the first Wonder Woman isn't... The first movie isn't really silly, and to have the sequel be this goofy feels really strange to me. It feels like it's like a completely different filmmaking team which is weird because it's not and i don't really understand what happened here um i think the movie is is way too naive um in in how optimistic it is like i I like the idea of an optimistic superhero movie i do think we need more of that but the message of this movie seems to be that like deep down inside everyone is good if you give them a chance and i'm sorry that's that's bullshit um, well, you know. I, I don't even think that's the message of this movie because everybody wishes in this movie and no one wishes for anything selfless or good yeah but right? the whole the whole like finale is uh, you know uh, or what 
the whole finale is basically the Imagine video that Gail Godot released where she's looking right into the camera and she's like, listen up, everyone. We could be good if we try. I don't know. It's stupid. The point is there's there's too much going on in this movie. I feel like it needed only one of the two villains here. Uh, it either needed either to be you know the Kristen Wiig character or the Pedro Pascal character. They don't really work together at all. I feel like if they just cut it to one of those two people, the movie would be a lot more solid. Um, I feel like <sighs> the movie is trying really too hard to be accessible for everyone. Like, <laughs> the Kristen Wiig subplot, I think, is like a good example of this, where, you know, I like this idea of this 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 woman who works with Wonder Woman and she envies her and she suddenly gets these superpowers and she uh, uses them for quote unquote evil. But the movie doesn't want to go too dark. And it has this, like there's this scene where this guy who keeps like trying to sexually assault her basically comes after her after she gets her superpowers and she like kicks his ass. And it's, it's portrayed as like this really bad thing. Like, Oh my God, she's gone too far. But like, really has she gone too far like this guy has been trying to this guy tries to basically rape her like three times and she finally beats the shit out of him and the movie plays it up to be like oh no she's gone to the dark side and i really don't think it sells that very well and it's just she go i don't know it's a mess and i also think like you know, Gail Goodell, I've never thought her to be a, a, a particularly good actress, but she was good in the first Wonder Woman. She was as good as she needed to be. She had uh, solid comedic timing in that first film. You know, the, the thing where she gets the ice cream and where she sees the baby at the train station. Like, she sells all that stuff really well. And when I saw that first movie, I had thought like, oh, okay, all Gail Goodell needs is a director like Patty Jenkins to get a good performance out of her. But Patty Jenkins directs this movie too, and Gail Godot is is atrocious in this movie. Her line delivery is just so like flat, and she just sounds like bored every line she utters. Uh, it's just the whole movie is like a mystery to me because I can't figure out how everyone involved with the first film, not everyone, but the you know the core team involved with the first film could come back for this one and just botch it so so badly. And I just I don't. I don't understand what, what went wrong here, honestly. And it's just, I don't know. I, I, right from the start, I knew I was in trouble because it opens with this like 30 minute, it's like ultimate Beastmaster, but it's set in, you know, the Amazon world. And they're, they're, they're oh, writing. I love that. I love no, that until I realized that it had nothing to do with the plot whatsoever. Well, it does because it, it's selling the whole like you shouldn't uh, cheat. Cheat, to win. yeah. But it's it goes on forever, and I, I it didn't need to be there. And then it cuts to like the, this mall robbery sequence where everyone is like dialed up to eleven. Like my favorite part is like one of the it's like a heist at the mall, and one of the the robbers. There's a scene where it cuts to his face and he's like, no, and it, it like the camera just lingers on him yelling no for like a minute. <laughs> and I was like, uh-oh, I'm in trouble with this movie. And I was right because it was all downhill from there. <laughs> so I, I really wanted to like this movie. And I don't think it's like the worst DCEU movie that, you know, that's still reserved for Suicide Squad. But uh, this is a, a big step down from the first film. And uh, I was... I was very disappointed with it. I do want to add two things here. Uh, first of all, it is 
interesting how different the action is in this movie. I know David Chen on his personal YouTube channel just uh, last night published a video that was comparing the action scenes from Wonder Woman 1 to Wonder Woman 1984. And it's interesting because Wonder Woman 1 like it feels like Patty Jenkins is trying to imitate Zack Snyder's action. It feels like Wonder Woman's like, you know, punching through people and kicking like, you know, like she's like, there's impact there. And then Wonder Wonder Woman 1984, it's weird. It's like, feels like there's moments that it looks like it's either, I'm not sure if it's shot badly, but it looks like we can see the stuntman not even hit them at all. And do you know what I mean? Like, it feels like they're not even having any contact. Oh no, it, it, it's, it's weird. Uh, but the other thing I wanted to respond to you, what you said, Chris was about there being too many, uh, villains. And I agree because I, I think this makes it, adding on that. And then adding on Steve, it, it makes like Diana be like a supporting character in her own movie. Oh yeah. Like, That's the other thing I wanted to add. And I know this is going to be a controversial thing because I love Chris Pine. Everyone loves Chris Pine. I, I thought he was great in the first movie and he's good here too, but I really think bringing him back hurts the movie. It, it like I feel like if that subplot wasn't in the film, it would also be better. Basically, I wanted less of everything this film was offering. <laughs> you know, as fun as it is to see Chris Pine have an '80s fashion show and wear a fanny pack and and all that stuff, his his arrival in the movie really doesn't add anything to the film. You know, it adds the sense that Wonder Woman got her boyfriend back for a little while, but even that like doesn't really. I don't know. It just it just feels. It feels, I don't want to say fan service because I don't think that's the right word, but it just doesn't feel earned. Like, oh, he's back, and then he's gone again, and it just doesn't really add anything to the movie. But that's me. That's my opinion. Thank you. Jacob, I know you like this a little bit more than us. What do you Tell us why you loved it. <sighs> okay, this is not me going to serious bat for Wonder Woman 1984. It's a movie I enjoyed my time with it even though it is about 40 minutes too long. And I should have been realizing the script stage, and I should have cut <laughs> 40 pages out of it. Um, it's a weird case where I enjoy my time with it, and there's things I really like. There are moments, there are sequences, there are ideas that I think really stuck with me and really ring true. And I think it has its heart in the right place in and, and every moment. Uh, but I don't feel compelled to defend it. I mean, there are movies that we'll talk about today that, that are controversial, that people are divided on, that I will, like, stamp my feet and stand my ground and say, no, people who don't like this are wrong. But I, I can't say that about Wonder Woman 1984. I, it's goofball energy. It's something I really like. I'm the Spider-Man 3 defender on this, on this podcast. <laughs> I like my superhero stuff when it's really silly and campy and corny. I think that uh, Richard Donner in the 70s recognizes a Superman. I think that... Uh, there's a real Raimi and Donner energy in Wonder Woman 1984, and it is so different than the first film. I think that put off a lot of people, including you guys, and I can't defend that. It's just a matter of, does that goofball, sincere, uh, camp-value energy work for you? And the answer for me is yes. Uh, for me, Wonder Woman is a character who's about, you know, hope above all else, and you know, believing in the betterment of human of humankind above all else. That is the most important thing to her as a character. It's a foundation upon which she was created. And in the first film, you know, by plunging her into World War One, into one of the darkest periods, you know, in human history, uh, she was able to stand as a beacon. And here, this is, it, it leads to, you know, for me, a real encapsulation of what I find inherently wonderful with the character which is 
forgiveness, the idea of having the power to forgive and the power to look past the evil that the people around you have done and being strong enough to say, I'll give you a second chance or strong enough to not kill. And that to me is inherently powerful and inherently moving and yes, inherently goofy. And I'm not going to defend this movie too much because I think (laughs) all the points you guys have made are accurate. There's nothing I can say that I'm nodding my head a lot when Chris is talking because this movie's a mess. It's a mess that I liked. It's a mess that I found agreeable. It's a mess that I got a lot out of. And a mess whose final points are ones that I wish I was strong enough to, you know, utilize in my daily life. And I'm not. <laughs> That's why Wonder Woman's a superhero and I'm not. Uh, that, that's, like I said, I'm not going to fight you guys on this because you're right. You, you are right. But for me, it's a case where the intent is powerful and the intent worked for me. I wish the action was better because the action does kind of yeah. suck. But <laughs> I, 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 I do think that there are individual moments here that, that really, really sing. But, yeah, no, no one who dislikes this is incorrect. It's I also wanted, interesting. I just because... want to chime in and say that this is exactly what I. What, this is the basic exact conversation that we had on Slash Film Cast the other day, and uh, Jacob said basically everything I said. And I wonder if our opinions are starting to merge now because of our joint podcast together and our love for like, just like that real camp, goofy optimism. Yeah, you guys are having a Vulcan mind meld. So what's going on? Oh, Peter, you have no idea. <laughs> we. we... <laughs> <laughs> no, but you do mention the, the the running time of this film, and like I didn't look at, I didn't, I don't know, I didn't pay attention how long this movie was. And while I was watching it, I think we were like an hour and a half in, and I was like, how are they gonna wrap this up in the next like half an hour, or like you know, fifteen minutes or something? And I like, you know, pressed the button on my Apple TV, and I saw that like there was an hour and ten minutes left, and I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, what is going? Yeah, it's, it's a billion hours long. It, it is. <laughs> It's a failure of screenwriting. This is not a failure of an editor. This is a failure of someone at the script level should have said no, stamped their feet and said no. Yeah, this is longer than Scorsese movies. Like, it's it's crazy. Okay, uh, who haven't we gone to? Uh, Brad, I think you were a little bit positive on this, right? Yeah, I'm pretty much on the same page as, as Jacob. Um, I, I don't like Spider-Man 3, but for some reason, um, <laughs> I I found myself, like, not bothered by the, the corniness of this movie. And, like, I actually appreciated how earnest and like uplifting and and positive um it was in its in its message and like it it, you know it wasn't i appreciated enough that it made me like not really care about the huge leaps in logic about how certain plot devices and things work in this movie and like just the things that don't quite make sense or they don't really explain very well uh and, and things like that i was i found myself being very forgiving and the movie didn't honestly didn't even feel very long to me either i don't know if i was just in a good mood or what it was but like i, I found myself you know enjoying this movie for the most part in spite of its many flaws uh and including things that like i thought that they actually could have improved upon like i actually wish that there was uh more action in this movie and i was kind of disappointed that they didn't utilize uh, the huge swath of 1980s music that they could have put in this movie to even to give it some more energy, even though the score itself has a lot of, uh, you know, that John Williams-esque, like, you know, big orchestral uh, energy that Richard Donner's Superman movies have. Um, and, you know, and that same energy for of those movies, you know, runs through uh, through this one as well, which I, I also appreciated. But, yeah, yeah I, I also understand though why people wouldn't like it and i i you know i wouldn't say this is one of my favorite superhero movies or even one of my favorite movies of the year or anything like that but i just you know found myself enjoying it and not really caring about any of the the issues maybe it's just because i'm 
I don't know, starving for for blockbusters or something like that. But yeah, I, I didn't <laughs> I didn't find anything like that made me be like, oh, I hate this movie. Ben, I don't think I've talked to you about this online or anything, so I don't even know what you think of this movie. What did you think of Wonder Woman? I was disappointed. Um, I I think this is this seems like a really stupid thing to say, but for me, like the uh, internal logic of the movie was so inconsistent that it just kept taking me out of it and and distracting me like the whole time and i'm not talking about like little nitpicks that you could make about every superhero movie like there's this moment where they go to the you know uh, air and space museum and they get in, in a jet that is just out on the runway and like wow the jet is conveniently gassed up and they just like fly all the way around the world you know like those kind of things you could you could say about pretty much any superhero film i think but just the way that the rules work and and seem to not work in certain ways for other characters and there's a moment where like uh wonder woman is supposed to i guess she's supposed to lose her powers but like she just slowly loses them for some reason but that rule only applies to her and not anybody else in the movie and like <laughs> I, I just want to piggyback off the jet thing um because i watched this <laughs> with my wife and my wife was like did they just have like jets sitting around at the area? And I was like, I don't know. And then like they're in the sky and there are fireworks and Wonder Woman is like, oh, of course it's 4th of July. I was like, is it like no one had mentioned that until they were, I was like, what the fuck is going on? Anyway, continue that. But wait, yeah, wait, wait, um, wait, to piggyback after that, I was like, I love that whole moment where they're flying the invisible jet, which is a cool, like, fan, you know, reference to the comic book, through the fireworks, which is, like, this wonderful moment that I mentioned earlier. But then at the same time, it's like, it's an invisible jet. That doesn't mean it can't get hit by the fireworks, right? It's still there. It's just people can't see it. Yeah. Oh, no. Okay, go yes. on, Ben. Sorry. <laughs> um, Like, really, the, the very end of the movie, too, like, I'm, just, I'm trying not to, like, drag this out too much, but uh, the... She lassos Max Lord at the end with the lasso of truth and is uh, evidently like spreading her message to the world, trying to convince everybody to renounce their wishes and all that stuff. But like the camera has been knocked over and there don't seem to be any microphones anywhere. And just like what how what, how is this actually working? Like the movie just seemed to. It's, it's through it, the particles the being thing... sent through the, the satellites. I mean, yeah, no, ben, I mean, obviously I... he's standing in the blue thing. Obviously, right. it's yeah. total <laughs> like like all of that kind of stuff. It just feel the whole thing feels like the second draft of a script to me. It feels like they have these beats that they want to hit, but they haven't hammered out the details of exactly how all of it makes sense within the movie. And then like at certain parts in the film, one set of rules apply, and then the same what should be the same set of rules just acts and behaves differently. And I, I just I found myself over and over and over again just being like wait a second, what? I thought it was this, but you're telling me it's this now? And I, I, I found myself really distracted by that. Maybe that's just me and, and other people haven't had that experience. I'm not sure. But the, and the only other thing that the really big negative that I would say is Steve Trevor's return, because I, I feel like it's right there that he should have just been brought back magically because, you know, there's this wishing stone and like you've already introduced the concept of magic in into this movie. So just have him magically come back. The whole thing about him coming back in the body of the other guy is just so, you know, I I I um I love their relationship in the first movie and I feel like uh you know a lot of people and including us on this podcast have I've already talked about like ah, I don't know about like Diana, you know, decades later still pining for this guy. Like I actually kind of buy that. I I think that um or maybe I'm just a sucker for it in in 
in my media, like the 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 constant of it all, the referencing the lost episode, like this idea of like love that transcends time and space and and you know is so powerful that like um, you know it, that that's a really good movie thing in in my uh, estimation. I love watching that happen to characters. Um, and so I buy the fact that their relationship is so strong, but then when it's not really him and it's this other guy, I just spent the entire movie thinking every scene where Diana and Steve, quote unquote, are walking around, it's actually Diana and this other guy. And even though it is Chris Pine walking around, I just, every, every interaction they had, every everything, <laughs> I just kept imagining what it really, you know, quote unquote, really looked like in those scenarios and just being really distracted by the whole thing. So I don't know. I, I was disappointed with the way that the movie just felt like it wasn't um, fully thought out. And and I, I feel like there is a good movie in here and there are some some good ideas in here. And like a lot of things that, that Jacob and HT have talked about, like the, the big grand ideas that this movie seems to want to um, you know spread to the world. I, I agree that those are um, in theory like... Uh, noble ideas and, and things that work really well for this character, but I just don't think it was executed very well in this film. So I, I was very disappointed with it. Yeah. I, I feel like I, the intentionality is there, like Jacob saying, but like at the end of the day, like being truthful, not cheating. I don't think that's like, I think a kid watches this movie and it's like the message that they come away with is give up your dreams, accept the truth. <laughs> it's like, I don't know. That doesn't seem like a good message to me. But I don't know. Maybe I'm going a little too hard on this. HD, uh, I'm not not bring. I'm not calling on you to defend the movie. But after hearing all that, like, do you have anything to add? Well, like Jacob, I can't go defend like each of the points you made because they're all very valid and mostly right. But um, I will just say that on an emotional level, and it, this movie worked for me, and the ideas that I was putting forth still managed to affect me and move me. And that's the important thing for for me with Wonder Woman 1984. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so moving on from Wonder Woman, we're now going to talk about uh, Tenant because a bunch of you guys saw Tenant. Uh, Jacob, why don't you start things off? All right. The reason why I wasn't prepared to go all in defending Wonder Woman 84 is because I am prepared to stand firm that Tenet is pretty damn great. <laughs> I know people are controversial about it. I know that it was dealt a bad hand because it became the face of failing movie theaters this year, and it became you know, the de facto, will it save theaters, will it won't, um, what's going on behind the scenes, multiple release dates, and so on. Uh, I, think, I think people were prepared to uh, not have an honest conversation about it. So I'm prepared to have that now with you guys uh, because I think Tenet's really good and it furthers what I like about Christopher Nolan movies in general, which is that he's always been a, a style-as-substance guy. And with cinema, we like to say, like, oh, this film had no substance or this filmmaker has no substance. And that's true for a lot of people, but there are certain filmmakers who thrive on style. Style is their it is the meal they're serving. It, it, is, it is a story they want to tell. Style is their character. It is the momentum. And I think... Uh, with Dunkirk is where Nolan really, really embraced that in a way he hadn't before. Where like movies like The Dark Knight uh, and The Prestige have have stories. They have pretty you know complex stories full of characters and uh, people making choices. Whereas Dunkirk was an abandonment of traditional storytelling style. Uh, sorry, traditional storytelling in order to become style as substance. Where 
the feeling of a scene, the momentum of a scene, the way things cut, the way it sounds, the way it's mixed, the way it's scored, tells you what you need to know rather than dialogue. And Tenet is, I feel, him attempting to bring that sort of experimentation uh, into a more mainstream action movie. And it has its clunky moments, I'm not going to lie. I think that Nolan sometimes does not trust the audience enough. He wants to double down and repeat things over and over again to make sure you understand it. It's a problem with Dark Knight, Batman Begins, uh, Inception. Uh, But Tenet is a movie about cool men wearing great suits, running forwards, moving backwards in time, getting involved in action scenes that probably only make sense to Christopher Nolan, Christopher Nolan alone. And it's very much a wavelength thing. Are you going to exist on the wavelength that what Christopher Nolan thinks is cool? And do you think that what Christopher Nolan thinks is cool is enough to be a movie? And for me, the answer is yes. It's the Michael Mann argument. I don't think Michael Mann movies are particularly deep. But Michael Mann understands that sometimes we just want to luxuriate in a hot tub full of cool. And Christopher Nolan's idea is, let's take the Michael Mann coolness, the suits, the tough guys, the glowering faces... But let's also toss in quantum mechanics and time travel because it's not inversion; it's time travel. Stop, stop fooling around, Christopher Nolan. Um, I think that is this sort of radical voice uh, of style as substance. Tenet is just a glorious experiment in how far can I trick a studio into letting me make this borderline. Uh, incomprehensible by by intention art house action adventure science fiction movie where Robert Pattinson looks so good wearing tactical gear oh my god he looks great uh and I think John David Washington is uh is also really good here I mean he's not playing a character he's he's playing he's playing a suit he's playing he's playing an idea uh, uh, uh he's playing an idea of coolness and a thing that people certain actors can pull off like I think Tom Cruise pulls it off and I think that Washington pulls it off here I'm not going to sit here and tell you it's a deep movie or, or a, even a complex movie beyond its, you know, convoluted plot, convoluted by intention. Uh, but I'm reminded of Jeopardy, of all weird things. Jeopardy is not about deep trivia, it's about wide trivia. And Christopher Nolan makes movies that are cool and wide in the same way that Jeopardy makes trivia that is not deep but wide. I am absolutely nonsensical right now. I'm aware of that because it tends in my brain. It's in there. It's like programming how I want to speak about it I think that there's a place or a movie that is cool first because <laughs> when somebody else does it on a smaller budget we're all about that style we're all about that uh, idea of replacing traditional narrative with something abstract but when it's done in two million dollars we demand a more traditional plot and that's friggin unfair I think Nolan is doing really cool things at this stage in his career with Dunkirk and now Tenet uh, HT do you agree because I know you, you tweeted you like Tenet but to this degree or am I a madman Tenet good <laughs> i i like tenet i you know i'm a simple girl just crash a plane into a hangar and you've got me (laughs) and yeah this is a movie that is it's so um, it's honestly amazed me that um a mainstream director like christopher nolan who can bring audiences into theaters or you know during normal times, just by virtue of his name, uh, will make a movie that is so dense and weird and convoluted and deals with topics that I don't think even he fully understands. Like, I think a lot of the things is just him um, tr- 
basically creating this very complex web with all these these action figures and saying if you guys aren't don't get it then that's then I don't care and I was I was on board for it I once once I like realized that halfway through I wasn't going to be able to like have a grasp on every single plot line and every single motivation of this movie and just kind of sit back and let it happen uh, I enjoyed it way more especially when everything comes together at the end doesn't come together neatly doesn't come together perfectly but it does and it's satisfying in a way that makes you feel like you're rewarded by this filmmaker who is just doing his own thing and making a movie about time travel and quantum physics and inversion that um is just a very what what a weird thing to make a blockbuster movie out of and he did it and you know absolute madman christopher nolan ben what are your thoughts on tenant um i think i liked it uh it was tough to say i i really like leaned i was looking forward to this movie so much and and i bought it as soon as i could and i really like leaned in and was trying very hard to track everything that was as it was happening i knew this was like a famously confusing movie for a lot of people and when it was over I kind of sat back and thought about it for a second and and I think I like uh you know comprehended all of the major plot beats and character mostly character motiv- motivations and and like understood quote unquote for the most part what was happening there were some you know uh I guess mechanics that I have some questions about um some little things but for the most part I was like okay I think I got that but it was just such a um a unique viewing experience because it was so purposefully dense that it was, um, I, I don't know, it, it, it almost, it's a movie that, that feels like it really does require a second viewing to watch and not in the way that something like uh, The Prestige or uh, Inception does. I feel like those movies end and you can be excited to revisit them with this knowledge that you have now. Um, but it's not required. And I feel like this movie is almost required (laughs) that you go back and watch it again. And I just wonder, like, I I spent more time thinking about, um, uh, you know, what does that mean? And, like, is Christopher Nolan, like, Hollywood's most arrogant filmmaker by putting this this movie out and, and basically saying, like, if you don't get it the first time, you're going to have to watch it again to engage with it. And, like, to not feed you enough to get a, a full meal the first time uh, I don't know what does that what does that say about a, a director like what you know what what kind of um world do you live in where you think that you demand you know four hours of people's time instead of two hours of, I don't know I spent a lot of time thinking about stuff like that instead of like the specifics of what was going on in this movie um I liked it a lot while I was watching it I, I felt like very uh intellectually engaged with it and just trying to track every single thing as, as it was happening um but I have not watched it yet again for the second time and I feel like when I do I will like it a lot more um <laughs> without having to you know just be like so uh you know clockwork orange my eye eyelids peeled open so i don't miss a single frame kind of thing making sure that i like have all the clues that i need to to solve this puzzle um so yeah i'm sorry if that was a little rambly but that's kind of how i how the movie left me (laughs) and when you watch it again here's what you need to watch for like take notes if you need to this is very important you need to watch the cool men in the cool suits going backwards (laughs) through time unfiring guns because i swear to god I genuinely think that the level of operation of this of this film uh, 
is just default cinematic style. It is just there. There is something to be said about cool men in cool suits. It goes all the way back to classic Hollywood. It's never been untrue. French film, French crime from from the seventies knows better than anyone else. Nolan knows it too, and I genuinely think that the appeal is less about solving the mystery and, and less about being a part of the mystery. And I'm not trying to condescend. I'm not trying to sound like I'm not trying to like make a grand point. I, I genuinely believe that this is the, the level at which Tenet operates. No, I'm, I mean, I understand that. And I appreciate that you guys can, you and HC specifically can engage with it on that level. I just, I find it really difficult to watch movies that way. Um, especially <laughs> movies where that are made by somebody who uh, elsewhere in his filmography has, has made movies that, are about putting the puzzle together. So it's hard for me to to watch this in the context of the rest of his filmography and just be like, oh, this is the one where you just basically disengage from it and just be like, let it wash over you and and you know, uh, whatever that character says in the movie, just like let it you know let it flow. Or I, I don't know I, what the quote is, but um, I completely disagree with Jacob here. Like Christopher Nolan does not want you to just like sit back and let it like flow over. Like he wants you to like see this multiple times. Like you're saying, Ben, like I feel like I don't know. I, I was the only person here that saw this in the theater. And I, when I mentioned uh, my reaction about this on uh, this podcast, I was very vague because no one knew anything about the movie. So I just want to take a few seconds. I know we're running long to say that, I think this movie is really good. I think the action is really good. I think that inversion time concept at the core of this movie is in, like brilliant. It's one of like the 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 most brilliant concepts in the last like few decades of cinema. That said, Christopher Nolan needs a co-writer. He needs like Jonathan Nolan or he needs someone by his side to it's so needlessly overcomplicated for no reason. Why does he like go and get that art piece at the beginning to bring to the like? It, 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 like it's all this nonsense that doesn't even need to be. Like it doesn't add anything to the story. Doesn't tell me anything about the characters. It just like overcomplicates things just to make it seem more complicated. Uh I mean, I, I think I could explain the, the art thing, but I, I take your larger point. Um, I, I just feel like the dialogue, especially, and like the, the um, lack of engagement with the characters. I feel like I, I've seen a lot of people talk about how great John David Washington is in this movie, and I kind of feel like he's not that great. I feel like I'm, I'm the only ben. person who's ever said this. Okay, good. I don't I'm, I'm think glad I have some I just don't here. think, I think he has a negative years. charisma. <laughs> Yeah, it's that's what? the thing is like it's just um he I think on the on Jacob's level of just like uh looking great in a suit and like performing uh action I think he works spectacularly and I was look I was watching the little like 9 minute behind the scenes featurette that Warner Brothers released a few months ago. I was watching that this morning actually and just like the physicality of what he's able to do and learning how to fight backwards and, and all that kind of stuff. Like you can tell that he used to be an ex-athlete or, or used to be an athlete um, because the physicality is, is insane. But yeah, just on the charisma level, like if you're not going to tell me anything about these characters, I at least want to have fun spending an entire movie with them or or if not fun um, in, a, in a movie like this, at least be, um, yeah, like stimulated or engaged or, or locked into these characters in some way. And he just, um, his delivery is so flat throughout the whole movie. And I just, you know, every, every time Robert Pattinson comes into the picture and just like says a line, I'm like, okay, this is what I want from the lead character in this movie, but I'm not getting I'm it. He pretty, just didn't. I'm just saying, I'm know. pretty sure Christopher Nolan has never met another human being because he does not know how to write 
a human character. <laughs> None of the characters in this movie are human. And I know I just went to bat for it, but I do think, I mean, it, it suffers from a lot of the same Nolanisms that many of his other films do have. And I think Robert Pattinson stands out in this movie because for a reason, which is that he has charisma and he does something more than what the paper-thin description of his character is. And as much as I love Elizabeth Debicki, she has not given anything uh, other than being a mother um and uh, no, no, oh, she, no. she, she tells us how much she cares about her son so much but we never see that exactly. it's the, like, most thing, the most important thing here is tenant allows elizabeth debicki to be very tall yes and that's that's the one really saving grace of this movie that that lets her be a very tall woman and that's that's like one of my favorite things about this movie that she's very tall and she towers <laughs> over everyone and christopher nolan doesn't once try to like hide that as other filmmakers might so thank you christopher nolan for letting her be tall <laughs> uh, i'm i'm gonna go to bat for john david washington here because we know that he absolutely can be charismatic and can be cool and all these things because he showed that in black klansman and i think that it's an intentional performance here for him to be more flat and be more reserved because of what his job is and because of the world that he finds himself in and he's discovering all these things and trying to figure them out and so robert pattinson is supposed to be more charismatic and more cool because he's familiar with all this in a way he already knows what's going on and even though he's in these situations where it's he has to you know desperately act and be quick to complete these things he still has been around more he knows what's going on and so he's not this fish out of water in the same way that john david washington character is so he's not going to be like you know a james bond or like a cool action hero kind of thing and i think that's very intentional i don't want him to be a, a james bond i just want him to have like uh normal human reactions to things like like uh look at Inception. sorry to drag this on i know we're going very long um <laughs> if you look at inception and and leonardo dicaprio and like the way that he uh you know spouts exposition and and um and i don't know there's there's a way that like you can make a, a super dialogue heavy complicated uh philosophical movie and have your lead character um, be engaging in it. And I understand, and I was going to say that actually, Brad, before you, or, or as you were bringing that up, like, you know, I, I want to give this movie the benefit of the doubt because, you know, his name is protagonist. So like, we're clearly not supposed to know anything about his backstory and all that stuff. So it, it very well could be just a, a purposeful choice to make this character as sort of flat and boring as possible. I just think that's the wrong choice for this movie. If, if, <laughs> if we're meant to um, have him as the anchor that, that sort of, uh, you know, gives us the one piece of reality that we can cling to in, in this sort of crazy uh, concept movie. So anyway, I, I just, uh, I'm not on the John David Washington bandwagon in, <laughs> in this movie, but maybe he was just taking Christopher Nolan's direction and inversing his charisma for the movie. <laughs> yeah, <Right>? maybe <laughs> all, all I know is that we always make fun of James Bond for going around and saying his name, being all charming, being the worst spy in the world. Then John David Washington, plays a guy who could be a real spy, a guy who is playing close to the vest, and suddenly we're all like, oh, look at him being anti-charismatic. So that's why I'm <laughs> Yeah, to tell him, Jacob. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and by the way, congratulations, guys. We just had a long conversation about Tenet without, I think, spoiling anything. So uh... I think it's impossible <laughs> to spoil that movie. It really is, yeah. I, I read Chris's spoiler review when I was still unspoiled by it. <laughs> <laughs> so. Okay, we got to move on. Uh, Jacob, what have you been watching? H.G. Uh, and I separately both watched His House, and I'll be brief on this one. It's great. It's really, really good. It's a contender for my top ten of the year. 
I talked about this a few weeks ago, I believe. It's a horror film. Netflix scooped it up. It's streaming there now about uh, a Sudanese couple who escaped uh, genocide who are now uh, trying to find a home as refugees in uh, England. And their house is haunted. And it's extremely violently haunted. And it's essentially ghosts they brought from overseas, from their homeland. And it's a, you know, a powerful metaphor for, you know, the PTSD uh, 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 that survivors feel when they, you know, move to new land, they bring it with them. And it's also just an incredibly terrifying ghost story. Uh, it works on both levels equally and both support each other equally. The performances are so good. Uh, I think his house is like low-key one of the best horror movies in maybe... This was a great year for horror movies. I'm not going to say in years, but in a year with The Invisible Man and Relic and so many movies and Possessor, films that are like serious contenders for my favorites of the year, uh, his house showed up and blew my top ten away. I don't know where it's going to fall, but it's a contender. Uh, HD, I know you also like this. Yeah, his house might sneak into my top ten too. And um, haunted house movies, I, I'm a real scaredy cat, so I have to... <laughs> I have a little, I have some trouble watching haunted house movies, and I actually watched this with my mom, which only lent the refugee uh, premise of this movie even more power. My mom is a former refugee, and it was really interesting watching this with her because she seemed almost unfazed by like the twists and the revelations that took place throughout this film and the deeper meanings behind. what the ghosts and the hauntings represent in terms of trauma and cultural trauma and she basically she was like yeah of course of course this this is what what it means this is of course that this um is what happened and that was really so interesting to me and um and on top of being just like a really great nail biter of a haunted house movie it's um it's a movie that really sat with me and uh, I do think my viewing experience uh, lent to that, but even more so, it's just a uh, it deals so well and so gracefully with those those themes of trauma and uh, equating those how we're haunted by our, our own misdeeds and uh, our own like cultural trauma. It's 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 a great movie and uh, stunning as well. I was I was honest I was very surprised by just like how beautiful and beautifully made that this um, movie is and uh, really snuck in. I. I, I think it might actually make my, my top ten. His, that's his house, and it's great. And where, where can you watch this? Netflix. Netflix, okay. Uh, ben, what have you been watching? Uh, Chris and I saw a film called Hunter Hunter, which is written and directed by a filmmaker named Sean Linden. I had never heard of him before, but after this movie, I am very interested in uh, what he does next. The synopsis from imdb says uh, joseph and his family live in the remote wilderness as fur trappers but their tranquility is threatened when they think they're being hunted by the return of a rogue wolf and joseph leaves them behind to track it so it's a survival thriller about this family out in the woods and um this this giant wolf that's like almost like a dire wolf from game of thrones that that seems to be roaming the area and um and causing them a lot of trouble and uh, i just thought this was really really well made i think it's just exceptionally well executed like very simple concept i feel like we've seen a lot of movies over the past i don't know four or five years that are about families sort of living off the grid in the woods and i guess you could you could sort of put this in that same category but um the uh the suspense and the the tension that was built up 
from this wolf, you know, potentially being around the corner at any given moment. I thought was really, really well done. Um, Devin Sawa is in this, and I, I like I almost didn't recognize him because you know I I know him mostly from like Casper and stuff like you know when he, his teenage years that that kind of period. Uh, but he plays a sort of grizzled family father, this patriarch figure um, who is out there, you know, trying to hunt down this giant wolf. Um, and uh, the rest of his his family members, uh, Camille Sullivan and Summer H. Howell are the other actresses that play his uh, wife and daughter. And I thought they did a really great job, too. Um, there is a, uh, a section of this movie that has like um, a pretty visceral, intense piece of violence that is not going to be for everybody. Um, trying to say, yeah, I, I, Chris, what did you what did you make of Hunter Hunter? Uh, I liked it. Um <laughs> I, I kind of figured out what was going on much earlier than the movie lets on. And I kind of mm-hmm. think that's kind of like a, an issue. Like the movie is playing its cards very close to the vest, but I was like, Oh, maybe I, I mean, I'm not trying to act like I, I'm a genius and I figured this out. You know, I just might be because I, I've seen so many horror movies or whatever, but yeah, but like there's a point where I was like, Oh, I know exactly where this is going. Um, that said, it's really effective. Uh, it's, it's a very bleak, nasty gritty movie uh everyone is is really selling their roles um i'm right there with you with devin sawa i knew he was in this movie but it took me like 20 minutes to realize who he was i was like oh yeah like i'm so used to him being like this baby-faced like teen that's like all the roles i saw him like idle hands and stuff like that that I kept. I was like, any minute now, Devin Sawa's going to show up, and I was like, oh no, he's been in the movie <laughs> the entire time. He just looks like like a, a really hard living guy now. He just looks really grizzled, and and uh, he's he's clearly been lifting some weight. So it, it took me a while to realize he was in the movie, but um, it's it's good. It's it's a slow burn. Like don't you know, don't go into this expecting like a bunch of jump scares and stuff like that. It's really not that type of horror movie. It's. It, you know, I feel like if this came out with like an A24 logo on it, a lot more people would be talking about it because it really, oh, yeah. it really fits in with that A24 slow burn horror genre that, that they, they, they've pumped out so well in the last few years. Um, it does. It feels like it has that quality too. Like not just the, the style, but like it, it feels of that ilk, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's a lot uh, like the tone and even like the setting reminded me a lot of um, It Comes at Night, which I know is a movie everyone hated, but I thought was really good. I liked so, it. Thank you, HD. You're correct. Thanks. <laughs> I am also on that team, Chris. Thank you, we, Jacob. We, 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 you are awesome. club. Because I also want praise. I also enjoyed that movie. Wow, Brad. Oh my God, all of us. Everyone on this show is great, except I guess Peter, who is not commenting on It Comes at Night. Uh, I have not seen chance. it. Okay. I haven't seen it either. <laughs> God. All right. No, but um, I will say that a lot more happens in this movie than it comes at night. So if, if you're one of the people who's like, nothing happened in that movie, uh, more things do happen in this. So you might want to give it a chance. But uh, yeah, like Ben said, there there is um, a, a very graphic scene that will probably turn a lot of people off. Um, uh, I guess the, the caveat is it comes very late in the movie. So... If you stuck with it long enough, you'll 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 probably you'll make it to the end. But uh, this is definitely not going to be for everyone. It's definitely not a mainstream horror movie, but it, it's pretty damn effective. So uh, I liked it, Hunter Hunter. Yeah, it's on DVD and on demand, and I guess it's maybe in select theaters or something right now. But yeah, you can check it out on demand. Don't don't go to a theater to see this, please. <laughs> don't. <laughs> 
Okay. Uh, I have a couple things to tell you. I watched, uh, I rewatched over Christmas How the Grinch Stole Christmas, the 2000 uh, live action film starring Jim Carrey, directed by um, uh, Ron Howard. Yeah, I was blanking. Uh, which, by the way, it looks unlike any other Ron Howard movie ever. Like, I, I feel like you can't tell it's a Ron Howard movie. Uh, Kitra had never seen it before. I tried to warn her, but she wanted to watch it. And uh, it's worse than I remember it being, to be honest. Like, aside from some of the Jim Carrey parts, I really do not like this movie. I really do. Like, you know, I'm a fan of, like, over-the-top production design and costume design and stuff like that. Uh, Like, you know, I like Dick Tracy. I I like stuff like that. But, like, in this movie, like, all the sets look like they're made out of, like, like foam. or It looks like a bad version of, like... Toontown from Disneyland. It looks like really poorly, like executed. I don't know. I I know it was trying to go for this like cartoonish like look, but I I really have no love for this movie. Um, Brad, it, I feel like you're a person that probably likes this movie. No, I actually hate this movie too. Um, because and I I love uh over the top Jim Carrey, and because I, I was such a huge fan growing up as a kid of you know all of his early movies, and I was excited to see this when it actually came out, but. Uh, yeah, it's just it's just too much. I, I don't enjoy it. I don't like how they beefed up the story of How the Grinch Stole Christmas at all. And uh, I, I hate pretty much all the characters. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just, it's just a nightmare. And I think it's really <laughs> ugly, too. Like, I I think it would have been infinitely better if they, they made it a little bit more brighter and vibrant. But, like, it feels like it's, like, doled down and, and like, made to look like... made to look made, They make a cartoon world look real in a way that is really unbecoming and i just yeah there's really nothing redeemable about this movie i don't think yeah i I feel like it doesn't help that it was shot on film which i know is something that you don't hear very often i feel like people want stuff shot on film but like that graininess also adds to that like like it doesn't look as vivid as it and bright as it should I just but, want to cut in here and say there is one redeeming thing, and I wrote a whole article about it for SlashFilm.com, and it's the subplot about how Christine Baranski's character really wants to fuck the Grinch. Um, that's it. I just want to say, Chris, that's my, one of my favorite things you've ever written. That's true, yeah. too. I laugh every year. I think yeah, that is hilarious. It. It's a very, very important plot point of the film where she's just insanely horny for the Grinch. Like, she can't... <laughs> contain herself like she's just like constantly just like oh the grinch she just really wants like to her breasts are always heaving and yeah it's, it's a, hilarious it's amazing what a amazing that <laughs> the fact that that's like in this movie and of all movies that ron howard was like we need a subplot where there's a woman in town who really wants to bang the grinch just is amazing to me that that's in this movie so that's the only redeeming quality i can think of the movie is so weird, and it's also weird. Like you guys don't know this, probably. I mean, Brad probably knows and and Ben because they lived in California for a short time. But like at Universal Studios in Hollywood, or even Orlando, like this movie during Christmas time, like it transforms the park. Like they celebrate this version of the Grinch, and they have like reenactments, and it's called like this whole celebration of Grinchmas, and it's like I don't know. They almost treat it like it's like the biggest christmas classic of all time and it's so weird i think it's just because it's all they have yes i think that that is true as well but it's it's i don't know maybe they could transform it into like the didn't illumination entertainment do a version of the grinch they did am i correct yeah i never saw it i saw it i'm sure that's better right either 
Oh, that's not great either. Damn it. No. Uh, okay. Um, the the only other thing I saw that was like uh, worth talking about today is I watched How to with John Wilson. This is something that Ben talked about about a month ago on the podcast. This is on HBO Max. It's produced by Nathan Fielder of uh, Nathan for You. Uh, I got to admit, like this first episode, w- watching it, it's it's this guy named John Wilson. He lives in New York City. He's um, it kind of is presented as like a, like how to like you know like one episode is like how to talk to strangers or something like that, and um, it's kind of dry. And the first episode felt very much like a wannabe Nathan for you. Um, I I almost gave up on it. Honestly, like during this first episode, but I'm so glad I did not because this series, I, I feel like it picks up after that first episode. Uh, the subsequent episodes were just so great. Uh, they, I don't know, it, it, it dives into topics that I never thought about. Like it, it talks about why there's so much scaffolding around New York City, which I didn't even think about before. Uh, it, uh, I don't understand how this series was filmed because it seems like he had a camera with him all the time like there's so many like these like montages of shots of like him walking into the wrong rooms or whatever and so it's like did they like go on craigslist and ask for like did they like ask people for b-roll of these like weird moments so that they could put this together because it doesn't it almost doesn't seem believable that all this stuff happened or he was able to shoot all this footage even if it was like you know, uh, arranged, like, even if it was like something that was a put on. Um, and I think by the end of the season, it hits a level of brilliance that I could never foresee. Like it really like an emotional, it it deals with the, the pandemic and everything like the, the show really felt like a mess when it started, but at the end, it really all comes together as like one singular thing. And I'm excited that uh to see what what happens uh with season two um and uh ben thanks for recommending us because i yeah i'm glad i'm glad it worked for you i know it's it's definitely i think that first episode it's sort of like um you know easing into a hot bath or something like it takes a little bit of getting used to and then once you're in there it's it's really nice so i think i think uh yeah i can understand how people would be turned off after one episode but i I encourage people to stick with it because i think there's a lot um you know it has a lot to say and and it's a really I, I found it to be a valuable experience. Yeah, for sure. Chris, what have you been watching? Uh, I finally got HBO Max because it's now on Roku, and I was like, fuck it, I need to get this now because it has a lot of good stuff on it. So uh, my wife and I have been... You know, I mean, you got you got to get it for your upcoming 21st Century Snyder because yeah, you got to so, talk yeah, about... So I can watch the Snyder Cut every yeah. day and study every frame. Um, but my wife and I have been binging through stuff. So we, we, we watched uh, the flight attendant, which is a show that just wrapped up its first season. And uh, I liked it. It's, it's fun. Um, it's a little, uh, it seems to exist in a world that doesn't really exist. Like some of the stuff that happens in this show really defies logic, but uh, overall I, I thought it was very entertaining. Um, you know, the plot is she's a flight attendant. She wakes up next to a dead man. She has to clear her name because she's worried. Everyone's going to think she killed him. And it goes to some uh, unexpected places. Um, I don't really understand how they're making a second season of this because it just got renewed. But it's going to be really goofy if the same flight attendant is like, "Uh oh, I stumbled into another murder." But I'll, I'll, I'll let them figure that out. Well, this uh, this was based on a book. Was there a sequel book? 
Uh, I don't think so, but I don't have uh, that in front of yeah. me. But even if there is, I have a, a very hard time buying into her having another wacky adventure. But uh, I'll give I'll definitely give it a chance because I like the first season. Uh, and then we also watched The Undoing, which is um, the show starring Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant. And that was not very good. Uh, <laughs> that is also a murder mystery show, but it's... <sighs> It feels like it could have easily been just a movie, and the movie probably would have been fine. But as a show, it just, it just, it's really spinning its wheels. Um, Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant—they're this like wealthy New York couple, and there's a murder, and uh, all the evidence points to Hugh Grant's character, and he's insisting he's innocent, and Nicole Kidman is sort of like, "Oh, do I believe my husband or not?" And it, it, it you know you're going to figure out what's going on in this show by like the second episode, but it just keeps going. And by the time it wraps up, you're like, Oh, is that it? What a waste of time. So I, I can't really recommend the undoing, but I can recommend the flight attendant. Yeah. And I just looked it up. There is no book sequel for the flight attendant. So they are going to be on their own. And I do agree with you, Chris, that like when it starts, it starts very solid. And I think as the season goes on, it gets a little bit more ridiculous every episode. And right. it start, starts to not exist in like our like there's, reality. There's all this like underworld stuff and like secret lawyers. And, and I don't know, it's just it's it, it's like they're doing like world building. And it's like, I don't think this show needs that much world building. But that's me. But beyond <laughs> that, I did. I did find it entertaining. So I can't complain too much. But yeah. the undoing. Uh, no, thanks. Jacob, what have you been watching? Yeah, I'm the last person on staff to watch Soul. And I won't go long on it because I think. It's really, really great. Everybody else has spoken to that already. I will say that Peter said something to me on our Slack channel after I talked about how much I liked it. And that was, when do we start considering Peter Doctor to be one of our favorite filmmakers? You know, he made Monsters, Inc., uh, Up, Inside Out, and now this. And I thought about that. I thought, about, I like a lot of Pixar movies. I like more Pixar movies than I don't. Uh, but usually it's, oh, Pixar is genius. And that's true because they have a lot of incredible, talented people working for them. Uh but there is a distinct difference between you know something like Onward, which is a good movie, and Soul, which I think is a great movie. Uh, so I think it's fair to say Pete Docter is increasingly one of my favorite filmmakers working today. He just, he just has to take five years to make a movie. And I think Soul is such a wise, beautiful... Uh, it's the kind of movie that somebody who is really in the middle of a midlife crisis, but came out on the other end feeling positive about things could have made. <laughs> it reminds me, it's a really great companion piece to Palm Springs, a movie I loved from earlier this year, both of which are films about how life is worth living, but life is also really hard. And uh, coming to grips with that and coming to peace with the fact that, that, that you're going to be disappointed a lot is a vital part of growing up and growing old. And I love this movie a lot, Peter. Uh, I think you yeah. and I both think this may be one of the best movies of the year, if not the best. Yeah, I, I saw um, Josh Gad either yesterday or today on Twitter, like advocating for the Academy to you know, for, for people to vote for this for best picture. Do you think that in this year, 2020, in the weird time that we exist in where less live action films were released, that this could have a chance to actually be nominated or even win best picture? Like not best animated, best picture. I'm not going to Google live on this show because then you hear a lot of keyboard clacking. So I am pretty sure Up was nominated for Best Picture, and that was a Pete yeah. Doctor movie as well. So I would say yes. I think Soul is good enough. Will it win? No. I don't think as long as a Best Animated Feature 
you know category exists so i'll give voters a reason not to vote for it for the main category uh but i do think soul belongs in the conversation because it's, it's i think it's nobody's making movies that work on every level as consistently as pete doctor and pixar when they collab when, when they work together on stuff like this i mean you could show this to a kid and they'd love it but you know as a 32 year old man i get so much out of this film that i would not have gotten when i was you know 10 years younger or if i was a kid it is just i i i think that uh ht will agree with me on, on this level i think that the best pixar has less in common with you know other animated american films more in common with you know studio ghibli where the animation is you know not a genre it's a format to tell all kinds of stories and i think soul is the best argument yet that that Pixar is doing that mission. It's not making family movies. It's making animated movies for anybody and everybody. And I think this film, more so than anything since Inside Out, uh, maybe Coco, I think, uh, it belongs alongside it, is really pushing what an American animated film made at this level can look like and feel like and talk about. Yeah. Uh, By the way, you're right. Hurt Locker did beat out up as Best Picture um, that year. But I don't know. uh, the Hurt Locker. I like Hurt Locker a lot, but Up's a better movie than Hurt Locker. Yeah, yeah. but I don't know. One of these days, I'd love to see a, a, an animated film take that honor. I, I feel like if any year it could be, it could be this year, but maybe not. Uh, I think you're right. Maybe the Academy, because there's the whole category, like why vote for it for Best Picture? But okay, what what else have you been watching? Yeah, I said I go fast and I went long. Uh, I watched uh, Bad Boys for Life, which is a 2020 movie, so I was able to watch it as part of my research for uh, end of the year stuff. And that movie's really fun. It's I don't even like Bad Boys one and two. I think they're pretty crass, gross, uh, disgusting movies that are really uh, up their own butt with how funny they think they are. And I, but this isn't the first Bad Boys movie not directed by Michael Bay and the new filmmakers. Uh, they're they bring a real pathos to it for the first time ever. Bad Boys pauses to actually less care about the characters, and uh, Will Smith and Martin Lawrence are really funny together, and it acknowledges their age and lets both actors like take that seriously as a plot point. It's a really well shot, exciting action movie. Maybe the action's not as bombastic as Bay's, but it's more coherent for sure. And I actually care about the characters and care about the choices they made. Uh, Bad Boys for Life, yeah. unexpected dark horse for one of the most fun movies of 2020. Uh, if you remember, it's from 2020, so we'll, we'll talk about this more in our end-of-the-year stuff, because uh, there's, some, there's some really neat stuff that I want to go deeper on. And finally, uh, I watched Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, a new Netflix movie with Viola Davis and Chadwick Boseman, based on the play by August Wilson. I liked it. I think that there are some adaptation choices that I think work against it, and that the, the, the movie is very much a one-location story, because it's based on a play. And I think it actually weakens by trying to expand it a little bit by having a few too many scenes that take you out of that room, either through like flashbacks or montages of people who aren't involved in the story. And it removes the pressure cooker element that makes the story of musicians trying to record uh, an album uh, in 1920s Chicago and having lots of difficulties <laughs> with each other. It it gives the story too much room to breathe. I, I think that this kind of story feels written to be claustrophobic. And I think that the, the, the filmmaking gives it too much room. I think they should have embraced the fact there's one location and really honed it on that. But uh, Viola Davis is very good. And Chuck Bozeman, uh, I, I know it's ghoulish to say this, uh, but Netflix is pushing him hard for Best Supporting Actor at the Oscars, even though it's technically the lead of this movie. And he's, and he's remarkable in this. And I think he's going to win. I think that Netflix is going to ghoulishly use his death to guarantee an Oscar win for this film. But at the same time, it really is a truly tremendous performance from an actor who's taken too soon. So... 
93 minutes long. You can't beat that running time. And Shock Bozeman is worth the price of admission, which is free or whatever the Netflix cost is. Whatever you pay a month for Netflix, that's the cost of it. Uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. It's good. Okay, Brad, what have you been watching? Um, I have been slacking uh, just because I, I have been wasting away during the Christmas holiday and haven't been watching nearly as much new stuff as I need to. But I'll be picking it up over the next week and a half or so that I have left before we start getting our uh, top tens out there on SlashFilm.com. So uh, the only new thing that I watched uh, over the since the last water cooler or catch-up episode, I guess, is uh, Sylvie's Love, um, which is overall um, an outstanding uh, 1960s romance. Um, I was absolutely loving every minute of this movie, um, right up until the end. Um, so this romance stars, uh, Tessa Thompson and Namdi Asamuga, directed by Eugene Ash, and it just has this, you know, really classic, uh, romance feel. I, I found my, um, found it as kind of like a, a midpoint between La La Land and The Notebook, but it's, but it's not as, um nostalgic about you know the the period as uh la la land is in its style as far as the the music jazz and uh that that kind of thing and it's not as cornball romance as the notebook is um and that's largely due due to uh the performances it feel feels very grounded but it's uh very charming but i once i came around to the end which i I won't spoil or anything but it just feels very abrupt and incomplete and almost half-baked it seems like a lot of things happen very quickly without much impact and i don't i don't necessarily know what would have made it better but i just found myself wanting more from it and there's even like scenes during the credits that kind of help wrap things up a little bit but i found myself thinking okay well so why wasn't this in the movie and even then it just still felt like it was just all of a sudden over when there i felt like there was more that could have been explored or that could have been handled in a more uh significant narrative fashion um so I, I'm, I'm torn because I, I loved almost all of this movie so much that I was thinking, man, this is probably going to make my top 10. But I, I found myself so disappointed in the ending that I was just like, wow, now now I really don't know. And thankfully, I still have plenty of other movies that I have to watch, you know, to to really properly make up my list. Um, but yeah, I, I was disappointed in the ending. And I mentioned this to Ben and Ben, what you uh, go ahead and say what you what you were thinking in response. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I love this movie. I saw it at Sundance, and it was, I think, my favorite, or, well, one of my favorite movies there. Um, and I think this probably is going to end up on my end-of-the-year list, because I just rewatched it, because it's now available on uh, Amazon Prime Video. And um, I I feel like it's, it's a movie that's divided in two halves, and um, the first half is really sort of uh, leisurely, and then there's this this time jump moment that happens. And then the second half is, is like equally leisurely until maybe, I don't know, 20 minutes until the end of the movie or something, 20 minutes left. And then it's like a ton of stuff happens really rapid fire. And then all of a sudden it just ends. And I, I found the pacing just to be, um, really jarring in that way. And it sounds like you had that same issue. And I, I felt like, yeah, that the ending was disappointing the first time I, on on second viewing, uh, it worked a little bit better for me, I guess, because I knew it was coming and and I it wasn't quite as jarring. But um, you know, I, I I can't like recommend that people watch it twice just to have that experience. You know, that's a, that's the whole tenant thing all over again. But um, but yeah, I, I still think that there's so much to love about the style and the the performances and the writing uh, all the way up until that ending that I'm still gonna go to bat for it. Okay, HT, what have you been watching? 
So I think I'm probably the only millennial in the world who had not seen A Muppet's Christmas Carol uh, until now, and I watched it, and it's great. <laughs> it's as great and perfect uh, as everyone else has promised it was. And um, one of my favorite things is Michael Caine, uh, who's brilliant in this as Scrooge, is just playing it so so straight. He's just he's doing his you know his his Shakespearean training in this movie and he's just acting with a bunch of Muppets and I love that, like, dissonance. Um, but yeah, what a sweet, lovely, heartwarming movie to watch on Christmas and I'm happy that everyone has been bullying me into watching it. <laughs> um, and also for Christmas, as I took a break from what, doing my 2020 catch-up, I watched White Christmas for the first time, which is the 1954 Bing Crosby movie directed by Michael Curtiz. And um, I don't really have much to say about this movie. It's, it's a great uh, Christmas movie for a reason, Christmas classic for a reason. Uh, you know, fun musical, uh, structured very much like a classic Hollywood musical. Um, but I do want to say I really love, one of my favorite things about classic Hollywood films from this time is that, um, that really sparkling dialogue. It's always really snappy and clever and fun. And um, it's just, uh, I just want to give an appreciation for for that dialogue that they, I feel like they don't do it like that anymore. It's just uh, it's great writing, really great and smart and funny, snappy writing. So that was my little Christmas detour before I dive into what I've been watching for 2020 catch-up. First of which was The Trial of the Chicago 7. And this was one that I wasn't really anticipating because I admittedly am a little hit or miss on Aaron Sorkin. I think he can be a little bit of a self-indulgent um, creator, especially when he is the sole creative force on something. This mostly has to do with my experience with him on TV. But um, I like the, the Trial of the Chicago 7. It was a solid, engaging movie that I do think um, felt very performative. Like everyone in that movie is doing so much they're really acting it out and while I enjoyed that I realized why it didn't quite work when Michael Keaton just strolls in snacking on peanuts and gives us real casual laid-back charisma um, and delivery that blows everyone else out of the water and I was like wow Michael Keaton's great in this and he shows up for 10 minutes and just completely steals the show and I really wanted more of like that kind of acting from Michael Ke from from the movie um, I just want to see more Michael Keaton too but it was just such a um, he like does does so much with like the, the big pomp of Aaron Sorkin's words in a way that feels so casual and I I love that um, but yeah I I did think it was really funny that these characters are supposed to be in their 30s I think and there's Sa Sasha Baron Cohen and Jeremy Strong there <laughs> everyone is everyone's accents are different it's just it's kind of a mess but it's really engaging fun courtroom drama uh which is what Aaron Sorkin does uh when he's best I do think that he does get a little bit indulgent with um when he's directing a film um but it's uh it's still still solid film so that's Trial of the Chicago 7 um next movie I watched was The Assistant which is um a movie that is I forgot who directed it <laughs> It's good. I, I was trying to look up the information, but actually, uh, contrary to my initial reaction, I, it's really good. Really, um, 
sharp and quiet movie that uh, is loosely inspired by the Harvey Weinstein um, case. And uh, it has a really, oh my God, I can't remember any of the people in this movie. Um, It's directed by Kitty Green? Yes. Is that right? Directed by Kitty Green. And um, I, I, Kitty Garner, sorry. No, Kitty Green. (laughs) It's directed by Kitty Green and stars Julia Garner, who is fantastic in this movie. And um, yeah, it's like a, it's very quiet and um, very, feels very just like sharp and cutting in the way that it sits in kind of the implications and the moral grays of this kind of situation and uh, almost mesmerizing in that way. But um, that, it's, it's really great. I don't know if it'll go on my, the top of my list, but um, really I, I highly recommend uh, The Watch uh, and uh, it's on Hulu streaming now. So that's The Assistant. And the next one I watched was David Byrne's American Utopia, which I'd heard a lot of raves about. Um, and it's great. It's a great concert film, but I can't say that I watch a lot of concert films. I really enjoy a lot of concert films, but it is filmed in a really creative and exciting way. Um, I feel like everyone on this podcast has had a similar lukewarm reaction because I I enjoy uh, David Byrne's music and the Talking Heads music, but... I haven't. I can't say I'm a big fan of it, and um, I recognize a few songs, and was like, "Yeah, I know this song," but I can't say that it was a big illuminating experience for me. Um, but you know, good show. Um, and the last movie I saw, uh, which actually really, really blew me away, is "Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always." And I know Ben has been really recommending this movie ever since he watched it. I think in like April or March, and yeah. um, this is a movie that I had intended to see for a while but because of its subject matter I had um kind of had to be I figured I had to be in like the right mind space for it and while it is a film that is is bleak and sort of unflinching in its depiction of this small um sort of midwestern Pennsylvania town and the life of this teenage girl who finds herself pregnant um it's isn't as like hopeless and despairing as I thought it would be. It's just, it's a really beautiful, really moving movie that um, is, is hard to watch for sure, but it's never punishing and it is gutting for sure, but it's never like completely shattering or uh, feels like it's something that feels completely without hope. Um, But it's just a really phenomenal movie um, and I, I was moved to tears several times during it, and I, I love its depiction of the relationships between women and the unsaid things, and like the really the horrible sort of small misdeeds that men make, and not not just the small misdeeds, but also the larger ones, and of course the the greater implications of 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 how women and girls are subject to to these men and their lives and men that they that they randomly meet. It's a it's a movie about how men are awful, really, but um, it's it's really really fantastic, and I think for sure this will make my list of um, top movies of the year. It's it's uh, really stayed with me, and I, I thank you for the recommendation, Ben. I know ever since I watched uh, heard about it that I was gonna like it, but yeah, I really really liked it. Yeah, no problem. I would say uh, an interesting double feature would be uh, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always and Unpregnant, which is on HBO Max, because it's basically Unpregnant is basically like the comedic version of this. um, But it also has a little bit of its knives out for the same like systemic issues that this movie uh, tackles. Um, But uh, Unpregnant is just like 
almost like a studio comedy version that I thought was really, really well done. So it's it's uh, an interesting experience to watch those two uh, in a row if you're looking for one more thing that's like way, way, way easier to watch than, <laughs> than Never Rarely Sometimes Always. I'd recommend Unpregnant too. Okay, Ben, you've been catching up. What have you been watching? Yeah, there's one movie that I watched that uh, was not from 2020. It's called Indiscreet from 1958. Uh, Stanley Donen directed it, and it stars Cary Grant and Ingrid, uh, Ingrid Bergman, and it is streaming on the uh, Criterion channel right now as part of this uh, Cary Grant uh, comedy uh, block that they just put up, and I really like this movie. It's about the um, uh, Ingrid Bergman plays this actress who has given up on love, and she meets a suave banker and begins a flirtation with him, even though he's already married, and Cary Grant plays the the married guy, and uh, it's just about this relationship that forms between these sort of like middle-aged, um, you know, slightly older people. It's a, it's a movie that feels like Hollywood would not really make this, um, you know, nowadays. Uh, but I found it really, really um, well written. Like H.J. was just talking about, like older movies, like White Christmas, having that great sort of dialogue and that banter and stuff. This movie is not quite as snappy as that, but the dialogue is really, really well done. And um, I love Grant and Bergman and the performances are great and the direction is really solid and, and I just, I love where this movie goes. So um, I, I'd never seen it before and I like all the people involved and I just wanted to check it out. So I would recommend Indiscreet on the uh, Criterion channel right now. Uh, what else? Okay, so then I'm, gonna, I'm just going to fire through a bunch of the stuff that I've been catching up with. Uh, Happiest Season. I was not really a big fan of this one. I, I know that, uh, you know, this came out right around Thanksgiving and people were calling this like a, oh yeah, you know, like a new uh, holiday movie you can throw into the rotation. I don't think I'm going to be watching this every year. I, I just can't. It's a movie that um, seems to, the, the central relationship between uh, Kristen Stewart and Mackenzie Davis is so... Um, dysfunctional that I cannot imagine just being like, oh, I want to revisit these characters once every 12 months. It's just so, um, yeah, dysfunctional. And and uh, I, I was not, uh, I, I really liked what Kristen Stewart was doing. I feel like Mackenzie Davis might have been miscast or something in this film because I feel like she couldn't quite hang with everybody else. Um, I liked the jokes. I thought Mary Holland, who co-wrote the movie, uh, did a really good job like writing jokes for herself she plays one of the the sisters in the film and um has some some great one-liners uh Alison Brie is solid Aubrey Plaza is really good um the parents are played by um Mary Steenburgen and Victor Garber I thought they were good too Mackenzie Davis was just sort of like the the weak link in my mind and I just um yeah for like a, a holiday themed movie I just thought it was a little bit too miserable to to like work into my like annual rotation. So uh, that's Happiest Season. You can find it on Hulu right now if you want to. Uh, I watched Mangrove and Lover's Rock. These are two of the five uh, small acts films on uh, Amazon right now, uh, directed by Steve McQueen. Um, I really liked Mangrove and did not care for Lover's Rock. I feel like a lot of people are talking about how much they love Lover's Rock, which is this movie that is basically just like a, a long house party kind of dance movie and I just found it to be like interminable like I and and maybe it comes from like not knowing the the main type of music that is played throughout this whole movie um, maybe if I you know had grown up with that or, or was a fan of uh, of the, those specific songs or something I would have been a lot more on this film's wavelength but I just found it to be like okay what what are we doing here what is happening it was just like I understand that it, it's putting us in trying to like recapture the experience of uh, or capture the experience of, um, you know, just putting us in a house party and like letting these people who are who have been oppressed and and uh, you know um, uh, taken down in so many ways as Mangrove does a great job of of showing, uh, letting these people just like celebrate freely without having to worry about anything. And I understand like the catharsis that that the film was going for. I just didn't 
really, I thought it dragged out way, way, way too long. So I feel like if this was, you know, half an hour or something, I would have really appreciated it. But uh, being over an hour, I thought um, Lover's Rock was a bit of a miss for me, but I know I'm in the minority there. Uh, Mangrove is, is the uh, courtroom drama, basically, um, that I thought was really, really well done and effective. Um, I, I won't go into any more detail about that, but I would definitely recommend watching Mangrove. And I still have yet to catch up on the rest of the small acts stuff. So hopefully I'll be able to do that before we make the our end of the year stuff. Uh, okay, MLK FBI is a documentary about Martin Luther King Jr. and the way that the FBI just straight up harassed him for years and years. And it's it's one of those movies that um, just makes you really angry at like the the how this kind of stuff was being. Uh, essentially sanctioned at the highest levels of government, like the the treatment um, that that was being uh, you know applied to this one person. Um, it's just it's so it's a movie that that just sort of makes you like squirm in your seat, like how unfair this is and how um, you know just like nakedly manipulative and and just um, you know bad faith that this kind of stuff is that they're just scared of the of the societal changes that he was trying to, uh, bring to this country. And it's, it's about, you know, how institutions are just like going, doing as much as they possibly can to put up roadblocks to those kind of changes. Um, but I, I thought it was a, a pretty well done documentary. So if you want to know more about that, you can check out MLK FBI. I believe that's on demand right now. Uh, I watched Tesla, which I, uh, I don't know how I feel about this one. I, I'm, I'm sort of, uh, middle of the road. I loved uh, Kyle MacLachlan as uh, Thomas Edison in this. I feel like uh, Ethan Hawke as Tesla, I was a little bit less uh, on board for. Uh, and Eve Hewson, who is uh, Tesla's sort of romantic interest in this movie, I thought she was just kind of, um, I don't know, a little dull for me. Uh, and maybe it's the character and not necessarily the the actress's fault, but I just, I thought she didn't, that character didn't quite pop in a way that I hoped that she would. Um, but it's, it's basically just a movie about how Tesla essentially came up with a, a much better way of, uh, creating electricity and, and, uh, Edison and, and society sort of, um, you know, basically just did whatever they could to, uh, to keep him down and his ideas, just to push his ideas to the side. Um, so it's a, it's a movie about creativity and, and being stifled and, um, you know, I, I thought it was okay. I just wasn't, uh, I'm not like coming out of it like, oh, team Tesla, uh, but I am coming out of First Cow being like, Team First Cow, this movie is really great. I, I missed this one earlier in the year. It's directed by Kelly Reichardt, and uh, it stars John McGarro and uh, Orion Lee. And I thought this was a really, really solid movie. It's it's very, um, it, it's it's sort of a slow burn. Like, you know, I guess not much happens in it, but it's... Uh, you know, the, the poster is like this cow on a, uh, on a barge, basically, in the middle of the river. And I didn't really know what this film was about. And I was sort of surprised to find how much of a food movie it, it is. The uh, John McGarrow's character is like a, a chef in, you know, 1820s Oregon. And um, it it's there's so much like great like food porn stuff in this movie that I uh, was surprised by and was very pleased by because I, I find that to be very pleasing in movies. Um, but uh, I, I love the central relationship uh, on display here. I thought, um, yeah, this was just a really, really solid movie. The The ending was like a little bit uh, surprising to me, but I think surprising in a good way. Um, not uh, not to give anything away, but yeah, I, I, I enjoyed First Cow, so I would recommend that. 
Uh, I watched the Bee Gees documentary, The Bee Gees, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart, uh, which was directed by Frank Marshall. This is on HBO. Um, my wife, I guess, grew up listening to the Bee Gees definitely more than I did, and, and I think her, her family has more of a, an affinity for uh, the Bee Gees music um, than I did growing up. So I, I sort of like knew about them from the periphery. Like, I, of course, I knew about like, um, you know, Staying Alive and like some of their biggest hits, but um, this movie does a good job. It, it's a very basic, just sort of, uh, you know, conventional documentary going tracing the the rise and fall and, and all of that it was just really interesting to to see how much of a powerhouse these guys were creatively not just in their own uh singing and, and performing careers but uh writing as well for other people i thought it was really interesting the way that they were able to sort of evolve away from like the the disco umbrella that was put on them and and still thrive as creative people in the music industry um, I thought this documentary, if nothing else, did did a good job of sort of like teaching me uh, how big of an influence they had on other artists, uh, you know, over the years. Um, okay, sorry, a few more. Uh, Dick Johnson is dead. I caught up with that documentary, which is on Netflix right now. Uh, uh, Kirsten Johnson directed this film about her father, who is uh, basically like suffering from dementia, and the movie ostensibly is about her like filming him dying in several different accidental ways, um, but really turns more into the sort of like a slower uh, meditation and and like relationship drama between uh, father and daughter that I found to be pretty affecting. Um, I, I know there's some mixed opinions out there about this movie and like the motivations and and uh, the, I guess, ethical implications of like what she's doing and, and involving him in this movie when he arguably doesn't know exactly what's going on as his dementia increases throughout the film but um i I found it to be yeah emotionally uh moving and just made me think a lot about my own family and and uh memories and and um you know the the concept of like getting older and aging and just all of the these uh these big life questions that sort of um you know uh come in and and poke in from the the outside every once in a while so uh, dick johnson is dead I, i thought uh was was a um, yeah a solid sort of emotional uh, little movie. I, I don't know if it's gonna like win best documentary or anything, but um, I, I thought it was effective at what it was trying to do. Uh, I caught up with Baka Rao, which is a Western movie that I you know I feel like the less the said less said about this movie the better. So I'll, I'm just really gonna say uh, you can watch this on the Criterion Channel right now. And uh, I would recommend it. It's it's not the movie it seems like from the first 30 minutes. It really, um, it starts one way and then by the end ends in a totally different type of genre and a, a whole different kind of vibe. Um, and I appreciated it a lot. I think uh, it, it incorporates a ton of different filmmaking styles into something that felt really unique and, um, and really... Uh, yeah, special. I'm, I'm not sure that I loved the movie, but it definitely felt like a special viewing experience. So it's called Baccarat. Oh my God, there's, uh, what, three more things? Um, Death to 2020 is the new Charlie Brooker uh, mockumentary that um, is on Netflix right now. Uh, Charlie Brooker is the guy who created, uh, or one of the creators of Black Mirror. And this movie is sort of like a mockumentary about um, like looking back at, at 2020 and, and going through a lot of the 
I don't know if you want to call them highlights, lowlights of the year, just like crazy things that happen in this insane year and making fun of them. I think the best part of this, it has a good cast, like uh, Leslie Jones is in this and Samuel L. Jackson and Hugh Grant and Lisa Kudrow and, and um, Kumail Nanjiani, a ton of, a ton of people. Um, I think the, the standout performer is Kristen Milioti as this like a soccer mom Karen kind of figure who gets interviewed throughout the film. Um, but I think the, uh, the, the funniest part of this movie to me, which I think it's like pretty well done, uh, are the character names, which I won't spoil except to say that, uh, Joe Keery from Stranger Things, I'll just use this one as an example, uh, example. He plays this, uh, the, this, uh, millennial gig economy worker and his name is Duke Ghoulies. <laughs> uh, and there are, there are several names like that. Um, all of the names are really ridiculous. So <laughs> I think, uh, I enjoyed the, uh, the creativity of the character names. Uh, Lawrence Fishburne narrates this. So, I mean, there's a lot of really good people involved with this. And I, I found it to be a pretty cathartic experience ending the, the year looking back on this. And it, it barely touches on, like... I mean, it touches on several big things. And it's like, if all of this was only the stuff that happened this year, this year would be the most insane year on record. But there's so much that this, this documentary does not have time for. Um, because it's only 70 minutes long and that's, that's, a, I think a good thing too. It sort of like gets in and out without being, you know, without dragging out and, and overstaying it's welcome too much. Okay. So that's on Netflix called death, death to 2020. Also on Netflix is I'm thinking of ending things, which is, uh, Charlie Kaufman's new movie. And this came out earlier this year and I just have been saving it for a moment when I, when I thought that I could handle it. And, um, I really ended up liking this movie a lot. I think I was I was kind of dreading it a little bit because I'm I'm a little hit or miss on Charlie Kaufman's filmography, um, but I I kind of love this movie. I think um, Jesse Buckley, who stars in it, is terrific, and Jesse Plemons is also great. He's he's you know one of the the main characters. I think uh, Tony Collette and David Thewlis, who play uh, Plemons' parents are just phenomenal in this movie and they are not in it for very long, but they just really like knock it out of the park in every scene they're in. Um, Jesse Buckley, I thought was really, I mean, she's like the standout performer in this thing. And it's just, it's a movie that gives you so much to chew on. Um, it, it feels like I'm doing a disservice to like blow through a, a quick uh, description of, of this movie because there's, it's maybe the most, um, I don't know, psychologically uh, gripping or, or sort of complex movie that I saw this entire year. Um, so to talk about it in, you know, one and a half minutes just feels like I'm not doing it justice at all. But I, I would recommend watching it if you are in the mood to um, to like work a little bit. It sounds like too much work, uh, but to to think and, and um, <laughs> like engage, actively engage with the movie instead of just like sitting there, you know, watching something passively like a lot of the... Netflix movies seem designed for this was definitely not designed for that. Like if you if you look away for a minute, you're probably going to miss something important or or something that uh, could potentially clue you into what is actually going on here. Um, so th there's a lot to say about I'm thinking of ending things, but uh, I suppose we'll save that for the best of the year moments because I'm sure we'll have a little bit um, uh, to talk about in that regard too. So uh, I just really enjoyed that movie. And then finally, I watched Shirley last night, which is the um, Josephine De uh, Decker movie that stars um, Elizabeth Moss. And it is on Hulu right now. I know there's a sort of a, <laughs> a joking uh, battle between uh, uh, Chris and Jacob uh, as to what side of the, the Shirley fence you fall on. And uh, I like this movie a lot. I think um, I... I I should say that I don't really know anything about Shirley Jackson, who's the character that Moss is playing. So I don't know whether that colors my uh, perception of this film. 
Um, it must in some way, but I just I wanted to provide that context for anybody who watches this film. I don't know how it would really work for you. I guess, Chris, you, you know a lot about Shirley Jackson stuff, and you really like this movie. So um, I think, yeah, for me, not knowing anything about her, uh, and, and I don't think I've ever actually read any of her work, um, I, I found this to be a really, like, uh, haunting, compelling, captivating movie. So um, it, I, I don't know if I fully understood it, like, the very ending especially, and, like, I, I never quite got a handle on the relationship between uh, Shirley Jackson and her husband, who's played by Michael Stuhlbarg, who is a giant asshole in this movie. Um, I never really fully grasped what exactly they were, <laughs> what their whole deal was. But uh, I still end up liking it a lot. So that's surely it's on Hulu right now. And I am so sorry for talking for so long. I'm done. <laughs> it's not you. This episode has just been overstuffed. Uh, and as we were moving into our, what we've been eating, I'm going to talk about my Hawaiian food stuff next week because uh, the video will be online. So if you want to check out the video, I can plug that. So let's just go to Brad. Brad, what have you been eating? Uh, I wanted to talk about uh, a couple cereals real quick. Um, I got the new Little Debbie Oatmeal Cream Pie cereal. And while it doesn't really taste uh, like the cream pie snack, this cereal is uh, so good. The, um, the, it's like um, the, the like crunchy, normal like um, oat kind of pieces, but with cinnamon and nutmeg. And then it has this um, kind of like dusted uh, sugar coating on it to give it that like, give it the, um, the cream pie uh, flavor of the, of the cream and the sandwich cookie itself, and it's um it's just really really good. This is actually um, one of my, like my favorite cereals that I've had as far as new ones in in a while. It's um, stays really crunchy in the milk, and uh, I just really like the flavor of it. I would definitely uh, get it again. It kind of reminded me of um, I don't know if it's still around. I don't think it is, but a while back there was a Cinnabon uh, cereal that was delicious, and it, this kind of tastes like that, but. Um, maybe just uh, the the coating make it has a little bit of a different flavor to it. So really good. You should be able to find it in grocery stores uh, all over. So seek it out if that sounds good to you. And then one thing I wanted to bring up because this is a cereal that I haven't had in a long time, but I loved it so much when it was out, and it went away for a little while, but now it's back, and it's uh, s'mores cereal, and that's S M O R Z because it's super cool for the kids. Um, and this, so there's a, there's a s'more cereal that's been out there for a while from, uh, I think it's a post cereal and it's honey made branded, which has like, what is basically the equivalent of golden gram pieces mixed with, uh, cocoa puff style pieces and marshmallows. And granted, those are all the ingredients you would think that would make a really good s'more cereal, but it's not great. I, I, I liked it, but I didn't love it. But this s'more cereal from Kellogg's is awesome because the the uh, cereal pieces themselves are a mix of graham and chocolate and then it also has marshmallow pieces in it and those graham chocolate pieces um are so crispy and like have the right mix of chocolate and graham that it actually like that's what i want like a s'more cereal to be and so i was so glad that i found it it's back on shelves now i don't know if it's like a limited edition thing or if it's going to be back permanently it's it's been like out on and off over the past 10 years in like uh like two or three increments i think um, I, I just read about it the, the other day about like when it was actually gone because I forgot that it was even still a thing. But it's back and it's really good. So if you can find it, S'more Cereal, S-M-O-R-Z. Okay, let's move on to what we've been playing and to send us home. Brad, tell us about Jurassic World, the VR game. Yeah, so I got a chance to play this uh, a little while back. I think it's been two weeks now. I don't know. Time doesn't matter anymore. 
Um, but I got a chance to try this out on the Oculus Quest 2 uh, a few days before it was released in their online store. And so uh, my experience with VR has been fairly limited. It's only it's been more recent that I've been getting into it. I got to try that Star Wars Galaxy's Edge or Tales from the Galaxy's Edge game. And before that, I had tried out Vader Immortal and played a little bit on yours. But now that I have uh, my own headset, I was able to try this out. And it's uh, a different gameplay than the Tales from Galaxy's Edge, which was uh, a shooter. Um, and this one, though, is a stealth game. It's very much a game where you're uh, sneaking around and trying to be quiet and not get uh, eaten by velociraptors. Uh, so the story is basically you are sent on this uh, mission back to the site of Jurassic World. It's set between the first Jurassic World and Fallen Kingdom, where the park is kind of in disarray, and you're there to collect sensitive information that needs to be recovered uh, from the the labs and, and offices there. And so you're um, you're sneaking around trying to find the stuff, and it's it's a fairly repetitive game, but uh, it is, it's still very enjoyable. You um, you have to sneak around because you discover that there are velociraptors that have infiltrated the facility, and so it requires you to like uh, be very quiet and like time your walks through through offices and hallways and hide under uh, tables and desks and in lockers. Um, and it's very suspenseful. Uh, it, it gives a lot of tension, especially in, in VR. This is uh, much like the Star Wars game. The experience of actually, you know, being in this virtual environment and have it surround you makes it much more exhilarating than it would if it were just your average stealth game on a console with a controller in your hand. Um, I found myself, you know, as I was, like, sneaking past, like, making sure that I didn't move my body very much and just, like, almost like I was sneaking around my living room a little bit and, like, peeking around virtual corners and seeing where the raptors were and everything. And so it's, uh, it's fun to play. I, I will say I wish there was a little bit more variation in the gameplay because it does get um a little tiring doing really much of the same thing throughout the the one thing that it does change it up a little bit is there's a section of the game where you have to um evade dilophosauruses which like pop out of like air vents or broken ceiling tiles and whatnot and they sneak out and they like uh spit venom at you and it like gets all over your face and makes it hard to see uh, and you have to either wash it off on a water pipe or wait for it to just kind of the effects to dissipate um, and so that changed it up a little bit, but it's still a similar thing where you're still sneaking around and looking around every corner. Um, the one complaint, big complaint I had about the game other than that is that I wish that they would have done it in a style that was not this cell shaded, um, sort of like comic book, you know, 3d style, because, uh, it's not made to look like a realistic video game as if you were actually in Jurassic world. And I think some of that is a stylistic choice to make it. A, less scary for kids who might want to play it, but also B, fits in with, like, the vibe of the game because there are little, like, animation things where if you make uh, a loud sound by, like, slamming a locker or uh, turn, on, turn on a, like, a, a radio or um, or something like that to make a sound to distract the raptors, that it makes these, like, animated sound waves around the thing. And so it's it, it fits in that way, but I just would have preferred if this was a game that made it feel like you were actually in you know a realistic digital representation of jurassic world instead um but yeah I, I enjoyed playing it it's a short game it's somewhere between three and four hours uh and yeah it's i, I think that if you you know uh, if you're digging into vr and you want to try something that's uh you know a little bit a little bit different and give you an idea of the fun you can have it's it's a good thing to try out but i again i i think it's one of those things where virtual reality is still you know figuring things out and so these games are more simple than they otherwise might be and i, I look forward to a time when 
we can bring some of the more complex, you know, video game elements into VR. Yeah, I think that's been my experience with VR so far as many of the experiences in games. It's like only one mechanic and it doesn't really evolve much. And I, I think that very much has to do with like the budgets that these companies have because like not everybody has VR. So it's like hard to like, you know, have a big studio, spend the money to like make a big, you know, game for VR. I don't know. That, that's just my take. Uh, I don't play video games, so I could be totally off base there. But we've gone way too long. We've gone over two hours. This might be the longest water cooler ever. That teaches us uh, a couple lessons. Number one, we shouldn't go a week without recording a water cooler. Number two, uh, we've been desperate for like these big Hollywood movies, and we had a lot to talk about. And number three, it's also uh, you know end of the year catch up. But if you made it this far, thank you. Uh, you can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at peter at SlashFilm.com. And please rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we will see you, I think, probably on Monday, actually. Have a happy new year, everybody. I thought Jacob was gonna. I thought Jacob was gonna barge in and, and say something. I was waiting but... for someone to ask for it. No. Okay. So. Good. No, I'm good. I'm good. You know I what? Stop to then. Yeah. <laughs>